Welcome to Radio Free Nintendo. This is episode 314. Duh. I'm your host, Jonathan Metz, and with me, as always, are James Jones. It's been a while, but I'm back. Yeah, it's been a while for you. And Guillaume Vayette. Just how far in the sequence of uh, pi numbers can we get? Nice. Ah, 314. I oh. get it. I get well, it. Well, we'll have to go another many thousand episodes. So. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we can do it. Yeah. We get an order of magnitude to the next digit. Uh, also joining us this week is our uh, frequent guest of late, Nate Andrews. Pikachu, Blastoise, Gengar, Psyduck, Geodude, Slowbro. No. <laughs> no. Sorry, still just me. Uh, no. Yeah, I'm not sure if people will have heard that part of the recording by the time the show is if out. If they haven't, they need to... It's probably not up yet, but it's not. Look forward to it. Every time I listen to it, it, it makes me giggle. Oh man, <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, what a way life. to go out! So we're referring to the telethon, which was last weekend. It was a fantastic success. Many of you have uh, already heard it in the live version, and uh, the recording is going out piece by piece. I think part two will probably be out by the time you hear this, and then part three will come soon after that. Um, total recording is about nine hours. It was a good day. We raised over $6,300 from uh, over 150 individual donors, and um, that is amazing. Um, all of our special guests showed up and delivered, and uh, it was a pretty incredible day. So uh, those of you who uh, participated live, thank you very, very much. And if you're just now hearing this, I think you probably still have a couple of days to donate before the uh, chip-in uh, is finalized. So, uh, if you have not yet donated to Child's Play, uh, there is probably still time. And I hope you will go over to the website and click on the telethon page and check it out. And it, even if it's too late, I hope you'll read all about it, see what happened, listen to the recording, let us know what you thought. It was a pretty special day for all of us. So thanks again to everybody. Bye, sure. Um, also, this episode is probably coming out on Wii U launch day. So, uh, happy Wii U launch day, everybody. Yeah. Yay. I hope you listen to this while you play your brand new games. Uh, we don't have Wii U yet, of course, because it's not out when we're recording this. It's almost out. Oh. So we're going to take one last chance to talk about anything else. Because <laughs> Wii U will probably <laughs> dominate let's... the hell out of this podcast for the rest of the year. And for uh, years to come, I hope. So does Nintendo, by the way. <laughs> Uh, we've got listener mail coming up after the break, but first up is new business, and I would rather not go first, considering how much I talked at the telethon and how tired I am, but I did play Paper Mario Sticker Star, which is the biggest new release this week, and so I'm going to kick off new business. Um, Sticker Star came out the day after the telethon, and um, I, I checked my 3DS as soon as I woke up uh, t in, in anticipation of downloading, and uh it didn't seem to be on the eShop. And I, I mean, I checked the new releases and it wasn't there. And I thought, man, what the hell? And there's signs everywhere saying it comes out midnight on Sunday the 11th. And then that made me think, wait, maybe I should try searching for it. Maybe this is just because the eShop sucks. And I searched for it and found it and downloaded it. Could it be that the eShop sucks? Could it be? So yes, the eShop <laughs> sucks. The eShop sucks. Yeah. Things come, things are actually out 
and even in new releases, on new releases and recent arrivals, it's not there. But you will find an announcement saying it will be out, even though it's already Was out. it Thursday? Because if it wasn't Thursday, it's not new. <sighs> I don't know. Anyway, I finally downloaded it and got to play it. Pedantry aside. I've, I've been playing it for a few hours this week. Um, maybe not as much as I'd like, but that's normal, of course. I did try to cram as much as I could before uh, we recorded RFN. And I'm in, um, I'm sort of like halfway through World 2 probably. So a few hours into it. And I definitely have, um, a lot of observations. You know, I, I had not played this game at all before it came out because it was never a playable demo at any of the events that I attended. Um, and I, I think maybe I should go back and, and look at my history with Paper Mario because the first two games in the series I thought were pretty good, like definitely original ideas and a really cool twist on the RPG genre. Not the most satisfying RPGs, not the most satisfying Mario games, probably, but uh, a cool hybrid, and you know, with a really cool style, um, didn't love the story, didn't love the writing, but I appreciated them for being unusual, you know, being and, a, and a, very, a very unique Nintendo flavor of that kind of a game. Um, Super Paper Mario, we, we actually covered extensively on this podcast back in the early days. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot back to my time with that game lately because I haven't played it in a long time. And I remember it being very disappointing. And I think the reason I felt that way is that the whole conceit of it or the way that it was sold to us, again, none of us had ever actually played it before it came out because they never put out, they never demoed it anywhere before the game came out. But, uh, you know, the the conceit of it was that they were going to sort of tone down the RPG elements and make a Paper Mario platformer. That's what we expected it to be. And it was going to be not just a 2D platformer, but also a 3D platformer because of this weird camera shifting that you could do. You could turn the world into 3D temporarily. Um, in effect, it wasn't really much of a platformer, I have to say. I mean, it was kind of like walk around and look at things and try to find things in the 3D version. Um, but other than that, the, the combat was very bare bones because you're just kind of jumping on top of things. I mean, it's, it's Mario combat, but it all, but it didn't, they didn't replace that with Mario platforming. You know, there were some jumping challenges, but it never really felt like a solid 2D platformer. It's certainly not a solid 3D platformer. The 3D platforming was very negligible. Um, and so the game overall, it, it, it sort of, depended a little bit too much on its puzzle solving and on its sort of adventure gaminess of like go, running around and just talking to people. That's right. how you go got through a lot of paper. those levels. Yeah. And and those levels I found to be sort of interminable, like really not very fun at all. So um, fast forward now, this is many years later, they're finally putting out the new one. It's the first handheld one. And I think the fact that it's split up, that it has this kind of old school world map and the fact that it's split up into, you know, 1-1, 1-2 kind of levels is really good for a handheld. I mean, it really kind of helps you break it up into chunks that make more sense. And so in that sense, it's more like Super Paper Mario. It's it's not just this one continuous world. And, and in a few other respects, actually, I think this is probably a little bit closer to Super Paper Mario than it is to the first two games in the series, in that it is barely an RPG. I mean, we've talked about this the past couple of weeks, but the RPG elements are very toned down. You mm -hmm. do have turn-based battles, but other than that, there's not really much stat progression. There's no experience. Um, most of the, you know, there's no random battles, which is probably a good thing. But the, just in general, there's not really much of the RPG left in this game. Um, and there's not really, 
there there is more platforming i think than in super paper mario i mean there is more kind of getting around is is a big part of the game that's what you're doing that's the challenge that you're presented with a lot is just kind of how do you get from this one place to another um but also i think the the fact that you don't have to stop and switch to 3d like you do in super paper mario this the whole game's in 3d it's a fixed camera angle so you kind of have this sort of diorama perspective which is great for the 3d effect but you're constantly moving around things, you're looking behind things, you're kind of, you know, they, they use the camera to hide things in the environment a lot, which is great, you know, and it's th something I really like in games usually that have a fixed camera. And they make really good use of that. Um, so the platforming is a little bit weak because Mario doesn't actually jump very high. It's kind of strange for a Mario game, but he relative to the stuff that's in the environment, there's a lot of places that you just can't jump to, they're way too high. You sometimes have to find another way around it or look for a hidden block that would help you sort of stair-step up there. But what the game is delivering that I really did not expect is, first off, the puzzles are pretty good. There's some puzzles that are, even early in the game, that are fairly challenging and really make you think probably more than you would expect in a series that you know most people feel like sort of holds your hand a lot. Um, I felt that at least... On, in a, on an intellectual level, I felt like the game got difficult a lot earlier than I was expecting it to. It actually feels like there are puzzles that you really have to think about and solve and try a few different things. They're not just blatantly obvious. So I think that's a good thing. And even though the platforming isn't really a showcase here, um, the exploration is. And that really, I wasn't expecting it. And I'm really enjoying that part of it. And I'd say, actually, that's probably the thing I enjoy most about the game, other than just the great art design and the the whole paper theme of it is done probably even better in this game than it was in the previous ones. So uh, I, I've been reading some reviews lately uh, that came out this week, and one thing that I've noticed is uh, a common thread of people saying that uh, the things that you've liked so far, like the explora exploration and the puzzles, are kind of uh, obtuse eventually uh, in the hmm. way that you have to uh, find and use stickers to solve them. Yeah, in terms of the puzzles, I mean, there there definitely are puzzles where you need a specific sticker to solve it. Mm -hmm. And it may not be in that area. You might have to go right. to a different level to go find one. Usually you can probably go to the store and buy it um, hmm. and just use a little bit of money. But in some cases, you might need to go to another level and go actually dig it up somewhere. Um, I haven't really struggled with that so far. You know, I'm still fairly early in the game, so maybe that stuff becomes more annoying later on it seems like it's uh, a pretty big hang-up for people but yeah i don't know it, it hasn't bothered me at all so far but um i'll have to report back you know in a, in a couple of weeks probably when i'm deeper into it but the the exploration part of it like weirdly reminds me of kind of like the feeling of running around in the castle in mario 64 mm -hmm. you know when it was like mario was 3d for the first time and now you can actually look behind things. And when you look back there, you might find a door that takes you to a secret place. And that was so exciting. We've never done that before. And over the years, I think that experience has not really been revisited very much. Because a lot of the 3D games that they've done since then have been not in the Mushroom Kingdom. And have not really been focused on that kind of exploration. Where you have a, a fairly small space, but it's dense. And there's a lot of just secret stuff around it. 
Um, most of the 3D Mario games have had more open kind of uh, level designs, you know, where you're you're kind of on this big floating platform and there's just stuff around. But th these are, in some cases, more enclosed areas or in some cases just a little bit denser. And you don't have camera control, which means that the designers have more places to hide things. And right. they do a really nice job of that. Um, you know, the fact that you can paperize, which means it's this weird kind of thing where the it's almost like the game takes a screenshot of whatever's being shown currently, and then it turns that at an angle so that it looks like it's just a flat piece of paper, like a postcard, and then Mario's floating above it. And when you do that, it re sometimes will reveal um, an outline of a place where you can put a sticker that you normally can't see. Mm -hmm. And so you sometimes when you you don't have to do it everywhere. It's not like in Super Paper Mario where like every five steps you kind of turn it 3D and see what am I missing. Because that became, that really messed with the pace of that game. You know, it made it feel like it just took forever to do anything. Because you have to do everything in 2D and then also in 3D. <laughs> um, this game, you don't have to deal with that. Um, then the paperizing, you really don't need to stop and do it unless you're kind of in a place where it looks like something's weird. Or it seems like something should be there and yet you don't see anything. That's <laughs> usually a good indicator. But it's not like you have to do it everywhere. So, um... I've really enjoyed it, and it's it feels like every time I go to a new level, I'm, I feel excited to to start that level because I'm excited to see, not the not that you know, look, it's another desert level. There's going to be sand, you know. There's going to be the stuff that you expect to see in a desert level. There's pokies kind of bouncing around, and you know, you're you're going to fight this, this certain class of enemy that you've done before. But the exciting thing is seeing what kind of weird environment are they going to construct for me to explore and what kind of crazy stuff am I going to find. And I've really enjoyed that so far. That's are, probably the, the number one takeaway. How are you feeling about stickers being the thing, especially in battles? I like it. Do you? It's, it's different. I mean, it's, you know, the, the battles are still simple and they're still pretty easy, mm -hmm. but they're fairly fast paced i would say especially kind of once you know what the stickers do and right. you kind of have an arsenal and you're like for this kind of enemy i've got two or three different stickers that i could use to deal with it which one do i think is most appropriate or which one's more important that i want to save for later for a more difficult enemy so it, it really makes you think about that kind of stuff you know and the fact that um no matter what sticker you use it will go away Mm -hmm. Um, it, it does reinforce the idea that these really are disposable and it's not hard to find more stickers. You know, I'm never worried about running out. I might be worried about running out of a one that I really like that's really powerful. And so I might be a little more judicious with how I use that one. But I, usually my problem is that I don't have enough room to get more stickers because I'm full. Mm -hmm. That's the bigger problem. So running out is just not an issue especially if you're doing a little exploration. I can just imagine a situation where you have like nine mega elixirs that you've never used at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't need a mega elixir because you only have one party member in this game. Right. Elixirs then, <laughs> nerd. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't even need elixirs. You just need like a like a super high potion because there's no magic points either. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think the battle system is very logical and it's not quite like anything you've done before. I mean, everything is a consumable, everything, even the most basic jump or hammer attack. And so, um, it makes you think a little bit more about it, but at the same time, it's not, it's not like, you know, I always feel like in final fantasy, for instance, there's this weird 
thing where for a lot of characters, you probably have a tendency to not use magic because it's consumable and you have this attack, which although weak um, and might miss is free. And so I tend to play those games pretty conservatively a lot of times because I don't know what's coming around the corner. And so I don't want to use my magic, all the cool stuff in the game. I feel like I'm always conserving it. And I rarely, you know, maybe only when I get into a boss battle, do I really let loose with all the, the best stuff that I've got. And Sticker Star does a nice job of giving you lots of cool powers and then sort of tricking you into using them on a regular basis because everything's consumable. Like you, you might as well use the good one because it's easy to replace and, uh, and, and the battles are pretty optional anyway for the most part. I mean, enemies will kind of, you know, they'll sort of waylay you. I mean, they'll, they'll jump out at you sometimes or they'll try to get in your path. So you can't avoid every battle, but, I avoid as many battles as possible, and I think the designers probably expect you to do that because there's not really any very good reason to to do them unless you have to. But what that means is you're not fighting battles every three steps, and so when you get into a battle, it it's not as frustrating as it is in a lot of RPGs because it might have been two minutes of you running around exploring since the last time you did it, and the battle's over in 15 seconds. So it's not it's just not a big deal. So it's it feels pretty well balanced and pretty well paced. I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm sure it's a pretty long game, you know. I I definitely get that sense. Um, so I'll be playing it a lot more, and I'll probably come back in a couple weeks and let you know how the how it holds up later in the game. But from the first few hours, I I really really like it. It's probably my favorite Paper Mario game yet. Yeah, I'm looking forward to playing it, but I have Super Paper Mario on my pile of shame that I bought earlier this summer for like $15. So uh, <laughs> I have to go through that first. Oh, it's not like there's story connected. You can play in whatever the freaking order you want. No, but it's I mean. just like a discipline thing. I, I, I yeah. want to play discipline. the games I have. You must have discipline! Exactly. Actually, Guillaume, let me, let me give you some advice that will, that will save your sanity um, and will help you move on to other games that are more enjoyable. If that advice is uh, don't bother finishing the game, I'm... I have uh, experience with that. Sure. I, I was just going to say, play through the world that looks like a video game, that looks like you're inside of a weird computerized version of Super Mario Brothers. That is the high point in the game, and there's not much reason to play it after that. I mean, there there's some good stuff after that, but it's oh, yeah. definitely all downhill from there. And, you know, if you're going to play only part of the game and not actually finish it, that's how far I would play. It's about what? halfway through, so. All right. I I mean, yeah. I, I personally enjoy that game's sense of humor. I think it's probably one of the funnier written Mario games. I mean, there's a lot of sight gags going on in that particular game. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the uh, the level in space is really annoying, but to an extent, it's still really funny. I mean, you have to go on the stupid fetch quest to get toilet paper for the guy locked in the outhouse in space. Yep. <laughs> but... At the same time, that level is ridiculous because of all the things that have like space helmets on and just completely pointless details they put in the level that act that are actually somewhat enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a fun game that I think gets gets a bad rap to an extent because it's not really what anybody expected it to be. You know, it's like Johnny said, it's not it's not an RPG. It just isn't, and it's not really a platformer. It's either. not really an action game either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's kind of a weird adventure game with RPG elements and some platforming. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Kinda. It's yes. <laughs> it's quite unusual. Yeah, that's I mean, for sure. I, I like it. I, I like it quite a bit. And in fact, when we get to now playing, you'll see how much I like this game. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> because I wrote about it. Yeah. Surreptitiously. 
<laughs> well, for those who were annoyed by Super Paper Mario, I will say that so far, Sticker Star seems much less of an adventure game in that the levels are not predicated on talking to 20 different people and, and shuffling items among them. Uh, it's much more get to the end. Find a way to get to the end. So I, I'm enjoying it a lot. All right, so uh, James, let's hear from you, man. It's been a few weeks. I've got three weeks of games to cover, and oh. I'm not going to get through all of them. Let's not do every single one. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's some real winners in that list. Yeah, I can tell. Let's let's start with the uh, let's start with the Zone of the Enders HD. So the HD collection of that game came out about two weeks ago now, I guess. Um, it's a 360 PS3 uh, combo box game that is HD upreses, not remakes. They're just upreses of the the two Zone of the Ender games that came out on the PlayStation 2. It, um, did they not even bother to include the GBA game? They did not include Fist of Mars, no. Weird. Well, but, I mean, it would have been weird to play that on a, on a 360, though. I mean, it's it's a turn-based strategy game, if I recall correctly. I mean, it's I just of, played a turn-based RPG on my GameCube, so... I know, I know. But, I mean, it would have been it would have looked really hideous, too, up like that. I mean, remember, right. it was a GBA game. So you you would have up it to, what, about four times its normal resolution? <laughs> No, I don't know. It, but anyway, it, so was this the first time you'd played Zone of the Enders? I have never touched Zone of the Enders. <sighs> it's oh. such a James game. It is. So uh, it's it's kind of weird for me because all I knew was the history of the games. Um, I you know I had I had some concept of what they were. Um, you know that I I knew with having experience with the Kojima brand what I was getting into to an extent. But to to me, they had always sort of been a thing in the back of my head that you know, like games I wish I had gotten around to playing, but I'd never mm. PS2 at the time, so I never got to. And Zone of the Enders 2, they made like eight copies. <laughs> it's, it's it's incredibly difficult to find copies of sometimes, um, at least relative to its predecessor. So, you know, in my head, I had sort of devised what these games were, but, but to an extent, that was my experience with them. So... I was excited when they announced they'd have the remakes like two years ago at this point. It was a long yeah, time ago. It was a long time ago. Um, so then they finally came out. I went ahead and picked them up. You know, it was 40 bucks, so it was a pretty good deal, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, spoiler alert, it's only about 14 hours worth of gameplay on your first playthrough for both games combined. Yep. They're, short, they're short games. I did not realize that. But – I actually really enjoyed them to kind of in kind of a weird way. So the first game is incredibly raw. I mean, it's it's basically all right. So it's your standard anime mecha bullshit. I mean, it's basically they ripped off the plot of every Gundam series ever. Kid kid lives on a colony that's attacked by a space based rebellious force in order to steal a very advanced piece of mecha and ends up falling inside of it and then taking it over and defending the colony long enough to escape. That's the plot of like nine different Gundam series. So this, they pretty much just said, "All right, let's just do this easy. We'll just copy this." Um, I'm sure we'll get we'll get a letter about that from somebody who's deeply offended. But it's pretty <laughs> pretty much the plot point. Basically, all you do in that game is you just sort of fly above the colony and then jump from hot zone to hot zone, punch some boxes to collect random doodads you need to get through the next area, and kill a bunch of like two different types of enemy. That's it. That's pretty much the whole game. It's it's pretty repetitive in, in that respect. I mean, there's a lot of like, we need a new weapon to get through the defenses of this boss. Where is that weapon? Somewhere in the colony. Great. <laughs> but is it like melee combat or is it? Uh... Uh, it's it's range. So what is interesting about this game and or about the series is that it really has a real sense of speed in the combat, which yeah. most 
most games like this, especially most games that involve giant fighting robots, just don't feel fast. This game feels incredibly fast. It, all the combat's very agile. The second one is even, like, kind of way faster than the first it, one. It is. So, in the first game, it's very quick. But most of the enemies are not good. Um, you know, it looks like it's a lot of cannon fodder, and you just sort of chew through them. And they're not, you don't particularly have to be all that skilled to pull it off. You just sort of need to know, all right, that guy's more dangerous than that guy, so let me take him out first. And once you do that, you're pretty much in good shape. The bosses are usually big, hulking masses of destruction that you sort of have to just dodge, 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 hit. You know, it's, it's kind of the Nintendo format of boss. Just learn their pattern, dodge until you have the opportunity to hit, hit them, go back into doing that. Hmm. There aren't a lot of, like, one-on-one duels with things that, with, you know, things your size, other robots, in this case, because they're called orbital frames, that feel up to the same power as you. Mostly, anything that's even remotely close to your size, you just sort of punch in the face and they blow up. Uh, I actually described the game to a really big fan of the series as, uh, the first zone of the Enders is break boxes and punch raptors in the face. Raptors being the, the really, really easy boss enemies in the game. It's like, yeah, pretty much. Um, it's very confined. It, it all takes place on this one colony. So all, it's a bunch of open spaces surrounded by houses that you kind of have to try to avoid blowing up. <laughs> the second game, though, takes all the controls of the first game. It feels, control-wise, it feels like anything I do in the second game, I could do in the first game. And in fact, when I went back and played the first game after beating the second, I pretty much confirmed that. But it's so much more important you're actually good at what the hell you're doing. <laughs> Because in the second game, you know, all I was thinking as I played the first game was, man, I wish there were more one-on-one fights with powerful enemies like me. Mm -hmm. Things that were legitimately dangerous. I don't want to fight big, giant, hulking bosses because it just doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like I'm taking advantage of my speed, of the agility, of the combat system. You know, the enemies here are really weak. I hate the fact that I'm basically flying over very samey colonial areas on top of a space colony. You know, it's, it's kind of... There, you know, it's just all the zones look pretty similar. It's a bunch of like collect random item from random zone and then take it to the zone you're supposed to bring it at and use it there and continue on this process until you escape. Um, but in game two, they pretty much immediately start you out in this very attractive like asteroid that's just that's being used for mining and it's just swarming with enemies. And you get into a very quick fight with someone who's very, very powerful. And that continues on for pretty much the rest of the game. These very diverse areas where you end up fighting against enemies that are like yourself in very powerful but you know same size as you and these these are very intense very deliberate fights where you have to have very precise control of what you're trying to do with your with your craft i mean you really have to be good at being a pilot of this ship to be successful and or- at some point in the second game you get a mech that can teleport yes which is amazing and it is the best thing that ever happened in video games. Yeah, I mean, so... The, it feels for the, incredible. For the first game and a half, there it's, I mean, to, to, to ape Gundam more, they, of course, the bad guys, of course, got one of the two prototype units. And then it basically hounds you the entire first game. Pretty much every time you turn around, it's behind you and able to teleport right up your ass and start doing a massive amount of damage. And you, you're just running from it constantly. Second game, you're running from it again. I mean, you're kind of running to it, and at the same time, when you encounter it, you run the fuck away. But, like, once you get this, you and it, you and the final boss feel like equals. Mm-hmm. It, it really feels like, in, and I've never experienced this in a game, it really feels like it was my skill 
that made me capable of beating it. Like, I was an equal with the boss. It wasn't like I'm conquering some overpowering god. I was fighting someone who has something equally powerful as me, and I just had to be better. Just an arch enemy. Yeah, it's it's really kind of a unique feeling. I mean, this just doesn't happen in games that often. Usually it's like I would be fighting like a robot the size of, I don't know, a planet. But well, no, you know but... who invented this shit? Nintendo, with uh, Shadow Link. It's true. Hmm. It sort of has the same feel, but it's so much faster. Yeah. And it's oh, so yeah. much... It's just, once you can teleport, the speed of the gameplay just becomes... Oh, it's absurd. It's kind of just like eye-melting. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went back and played the second game. So it took me about 10 hours to clear game two. And first off, game two is so much prettier than the first game. It's just a... It's just a fantastically better game. The f- the first one I, I I'm not going to shit on because I liked it at the time. Yeah. Um. But the second game is Zone of the Enders Two is really a gem of of that whole PlayStation Two generation that not very many people played, and it's really a spectacular game. And I've thought for a long time that you should play it, James. So I'm I'm so glad you caught up with it. The beauty of of what they did is you could really tell they took their time and said. We liked fundamentally what we did with the first game, but how can we make this much better? Mm-hmm. Because like I said, when I went back and played the first game, with the exception of Teleport, because I mean in both cases you're piloting the orbital frame Jehuti. He doesn't have it yet. It's it's you know, it's it's very much simpler. Um all of the techniques that I had picked up for combat in the second game, I could still carry into the first game. And I became a much more dominating presence in that game than I was the first time I played it. The second time I played the second game I actually used the final form of of your mecha and just annihilated everything <laughs> with the teleport, with all the power ups, and just just went on it. Just so I beat the first three levels before I got hit. hit. I love wow. that you played both of these games twice. <laughs> I haven't I haven't beaten this the first game um, yet on my second playthrough, but with the overpowered super unit, like I was two thirds of the way through the second game in an hour and a half. I mean, did, like, it did was you just, try the weird three uh, D Gradius? mode i did it's bizarre <laughs> it's it really, really weird <laughs> it's kind of like what if gradius was Star Fox? yeah so the hero and bad of, yeah oh the hero of the first game um comes back as a cameo in the second in his in his particular mecha unit known as vic viper which is a callback to yeah. to that series and then if you're playing as him in the versus mode i think that's one of the ways you can do it and you input a standard Konami-style password, you end up unlocking this weird, bizarro land game that's just cr- confusing and odd and unsettling. Deeply, <laughs> deeply unsettling. It's kind what? of just a throwaway bonus mode. Yeah, it's, it, it's it, really it's odd. Cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool that they did that, you know. The, uh, there's also, like, this weird ver- versus mode where you can, like, really take two of the units, two of the really powerful units from the game, and just actually get to feel what it's like to control the enemy units, which is interesting because mm-hmm. all of them are pretty, mm-hmm. especially in the second game, they're all pretty distinct. Yeah, and you can play as the bosses, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's who you're playing as. I mean, you can you can go see what it's like to be against the, the last form of Jehuti, which, by the way, is a pain in the ass to be against because it teleports all over the fucking place. <laughs> and you're you're just trying to stay, stay alive long enough to do something to it. And it's just kind of this... There's, it's such a better game in the second one. I mean, even visually, it's it's 
it's running on the Metal Gear Solid 2 engine, which upreses amazingly. Yeah. Like, it looks gorgeous. The first game, obviously, doesn't upres, wasn't using that engine because it came with a demo of the game. It so came obviously. out before MGS2. But, but those games, I mean, both of them at the time they originally came out, I thought mm-hmm. looked fantastic. Yeah. The second Se- game especially was just astonished. It was like up there with Okami as like probably one of the best looking it's, PS2 games. And upres, it's, it's unbelievable. Oh. It's, it's You're making just... me want to go get this. I I might wait until they split it and make them downloadable separately. Yeah, and then maybe I'll just download Zoe two. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with with gotten having to go through. Like I forced myself to go through one, even though I knew from his from historical perspective that two was better because I knew yeah. that I had to play them in order. And you had Not, to get the story. I mean, yeah, and it actually does. <laughs> it's a Kojima for, story, so for, for Kojima, it does a remarkably good job of keeping a consistent plot, despite the fact it throws away most of the characters. But <laughs> like, like, there's one character who carries over, and your first introduction to him—he's the hero of the first game. Your first introduction is you beat the crap out of him, and then and then he spends the next ten minutes talking to the uh, the robot you basically stole from him. It's like they just have this conversation while you're just standing there, and then you get random Kojima dialogue, which I love because Kojima's dialogue is just bad. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. He's talking to your to the robot you're piloting, and then finally your character butts in something like, "Hey, I'm still here," or something along those lines, and uh, he introduces himself again. Although they've already identified who he is. And then he asks you what your name is. And your character responds. And I'm going to do this in my best impression of his voice. Shut up! And then he says his name. (laughs) (laughs) Like, There's like 20 times in the game where dialogue that happens. I'm like, what the fuck was that? That sounds magnificent. I'm pretty sure that uh, Hideo Kojima is a terrible writer. And I think most of the people who are huge fans of his either know that or they secretly know it and won't admit it to themselves. Oh, he's like... His his scenario stuff. Well, he didn't even do the scenario for these games. Like somebody he's, else did them. He's very creative, <laughs> but yeah. I don't think he actually knows how to tell a story. <laughs> it's it's so weird, but I'm so happy that it's there because it feels amazing just to go through that game. It's one of the few games where I feel like I get legitimately better at playing it as I play, and you really have to because otherwise the second game will annihilate you. All right, so James, we you got a lot of other games to talk about. You probably better move on. Oh, uh, can I talk about Revengeance oh, real quick? please do. Since it was there, and it was literally a 10-minute demo. Yeah, so you you can only get this demo for Metal Gear Rising Revengeance with the collection, right? Yes, okay. at least at this moment, because apparently yeah. Kojima's never heard of downloads. So this game, the demo, like I said, is 10 minutes, and it's fucking insane. Mm-hmm. So apparently there's been a war again, and uh, cybernetic... Body replacement has become commonplace amongst private military contractors, because why not? And uh, Raiden has joined a PMC designed to, quote, increase the peace, game quote, not mine. Increase the peace. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't know if I can handle any more story description of this game. I want to hear <laughs> but, about melting shit but, with your sword. But, well, I just want to say, the game starts with Raiden strapped to a pair of wings with a jet flying over the ocean. Okay. Just... And okay. then he lands Good. and then immediately begins going into slow-mo mode to cut things in half with his sword, Good. which you control the angle of with the control stick. It's odd. It's so is it a, the... it's a cut scene, but you control the sword angle? No, no. You, you, you put the game in slow-mo mode. You press the button and it slows down bullet time like, oh, uh, okay. like okay. Beautiful Joe. And then use the control stick to angle your sword and then cut watermelons into yep. precisely formed shapes. Well, this is – isn't this made by – 
dude who did Beautiful Joe? It, it is made by the... Platinum, so that's quite possible. It is now. I think it's directed by Kamiya, though, isn't it? Oh, it could be. I'm not sure. But it's – so, yeah, it's a, it feels very hack and slashy until, like, you get to points where you have to sort of slow down time to, like, precisely cut off dude's hands because apparently left hands are the currency of this game. Again, <laughs> I'm not making this up. Like, you wear them on a necklace? You collect left hand. You collect left hands for upgrades. <laughs> Wait, what? I, it used to be like the the spines yes. of the enemies or something. Is it hands now? It's left hands. Are you serious? So, so I'll explain. I'll explain because they do give you this, this explanation. So, because all the PMCs have become cybernetic, sure, that's that's where the memory chips are stored on most cybernetic forms in the left hand. Okay, yeah. So if you can trade them for good intel. Therefore, you get upgrades if you cut people's left hands off and give them to this very German-sounding doctor who's super creepy. Thanks, game. Do you get anything? Don't you like harvest their spines? Or, oh, do you still? Yeah. Do also, that? also, yeah. Also, Raiden's a vampire, mm. so he cuts people in half and then rips their cybernetic spines out mm. and crushes them in his hand for health. Yeah. Nice. It's, and in fact, one of the characters in the game goes, "Oh, Mr. Vampire Ninja Robot." Riding in his very ridinous goes, shut up. <laughs> and then just proceeds to go walk around and cutting things in half. And that was 10 minutes. For that. That, was, that was 11 minutes. So long. And then the demo ended. Uh -huh. So the, uh, the demo boss is you're fighting a dog with a chainsaw for a tail. Yeah, that thing looks cool. And he just jumps around and, gives, and talks about how smart he is. And then you cut him in half in tiny little pieces. It's like this is the weirdest game. On this disc of three very weird games. Except it's not on this disc because they put it on a separate disc because apparently they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> not that it wouldn't fit, but it's got to get its own disc. Yeah, I'm tepidly looking forward to this game at some point when it's less than $40. I'm kind <laughs> of excited will for be, it. Which will be pretty quick, I would imagine. I, I fucking love Vanquish. So yeah. I think it's pretty much the same people making this. And so I'm kind of it. Into it doesn't it. feel like Vanquish, though. I mean, it's so weird. It's such a... I can't wait to play the demo. I hope they put that out for everybody at some point. But uh, I, I'm pretty excited for Revengeance, I have to say. You know, I, I think there's probably hope for a for kind of a, a late-breaking Wii U version of this game. I mean, considering the amount of support Platinum Games is giving to Wii U and... Yeah. Is it their decision, though? Uh, yeah, that maybe not. I mean, it is a Konami-published game, and so, yep. um, mm -hmm. yeah, they, they may not have much say in it. And, you know, th there's a lot of work that goes into that, too, but I, I do kind of wonder. I mean, it, it seems like it would be a nice... Uh, be a nice get, and considering the game's not coming out until February or March. February 2013, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd give it like a 10% chance. Um, so, James, uh, why don't you tell us about One More Ninja? Yeah, so I also, in in the sort of downtime as I was trying to wait for games, I got a hold of Shinobi 3, 3DS, sorry, Shinobi 3DS. Like, incredibly dirt cheap. How much did you pay? Because it goes for about 15 on Amazon. Yeah, I got it for like ten. Huh? Mm. That game's hard. Oh my god! Like that <laughs> that game is difficult. Are you playing yeah. on easy though? No. Well, so I had to cut to easy about a halfway through the game because I ran out of continues. Yeah, I think that's a good <laughs> idea. On easy, you've got unlimited lives. It doesn't actually make the game easy. It just makes it more forgiving. Well, it not even it doesn't make it more forgiving. It just means that you can continue. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's. Oh, difficult. But you get used to it. Like, I, I played it a couple of months ago, um, and yeah, I won't say that the game was easy, but I did finish the game 
on the easy mode with the help of Infinite Continues. And then I started an another game just to see. And uh, all of a sudden, I kind of got the level design. Uh, and I kind of got the, the rhythm of the enemy attacks and everything. And yeah. it became a lot more... A lot easier to manage. I, I was just surprised by just how much I had incorporated, you know, like uh, how much I had uh, picked up, uh, you know, during my playthrough. Because I, during my first playthrough, I, I felt like I didn't know what the hell I was doing most of the time and just like rushing into enemies until they died. Uh, and then, you know, the second time around, I was like, oh, wait, I'm, you know, I'm actually competent against these enemies. I can block in time and I can, uh, I, I can move around much more effectively. Yeah, the game the game really makes no effort to teach you any of that stuff. It's no. like, eh, you'll figure it out. Oh, wait, no, you won't, because you're running a continues in about 30 seconds. Let's go. <laughs> you, you know, um, I, sh I should have asked this back when Greg first um, played this game like a year ago, but the horse riding scenes. Oh, God! Did they, did they ever fix those? Because it was bad at E3. No, it's they're still bad. No. They're still yeah, but, still not good. but eventually you kind of learn them by heart. and <laughs> That's so, what you have to do. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're like, if you're playing with, with limited continues, they're like a massive life drain. Yeah. Like, they're just a mechanism by which the game deprives you of lives. I mean, that's that's all they're there for. Like, I don't, I didn't feel particular joy about any of them. They just, like, I will take lives from you now. Isn't there just one of those, though? I think there's two. I want to hmm. say there's two. Eventually, the game mixes things up a little bit, and you jump from car to car and stuff like that. But yeah. it doesn't play like the horse level. It feels like a set piece level, but the the gameplay yeah. is more traditional. You're using the skills that you use uh, during the main game. Yeah, it it makes it very difficult to dodge attacks though, because the ground is literally blowing up <laughs> very quickly. I mean, it's it, like it's just you're constantly having to move from floor to floor because the ground will just get knocked out from under you constantly. Yeah. It's, well, th it, this game's been on my um, sort of watch list for quite a while, and it, it's not really the price. It's more that, you know, I haven't f found enough of a lull in my 3DS library that I really needed to fill it with something like this. But I, I, I did enjoy it when I first played it, and I'd still like to go back and pick it up sometime. Hmm. I will say the uh, the game itself is, is, like I said, it's very difficult, but it's kind of weirdly tongue-in-cheek aware of how it is. But uh, I do like the achievement for beating it on the hardest difficulty, which is called I Am Nin or You Are Ninja, which is described as I Am Ninja. You beat this game on hardest difficulty. That must mean you are ninja too. Like that's like the game is totally aware of what you're up against. Like it's it's so so. I actually played it on hard just before we started the podcast just to see. Yeah, that was a mistake. That's that's just a soul crushing experience. But if you like that. There you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, while we're on the topic of Shinobi... Oh, way to spoil it. Uh, <laughs> so I've been playing... Um, I, I have a friend uh, who's been bugging me to try Shinobi 3 for a long time, and I finally gave in and uh, gave the game a shot. Uh, that was on the Genesis, and uh, it's on various Genesis collections. Uh, I actually own the game twice already. You know, on the Ulti Sonic's Ultimate Genesis Collection on the PS3 and the the Genesis Collection on the P PSP as well, and it's it's on Wii Virtual Console too, as well. Yes, so it is relevant to this uh, <laughs> to this podcast, of course. Sega's games like have always felt weird to me. Uh, I had a friend back in the day who had a Genesis and who would 
play Sega developed games like Batman Returns or Jurassic Park or the art style was always so weird to me. It's always these tall sprites, you know, that are actually kind of realistic looking humans. And that was kind of foreign to, uh, to, you know, Nintendo fans because, you know, like when you like Nintendo, you like what? Final Fantasy where the characters like 40% of them is their head. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of the same thing with Mario. He's like three heads tall. And you've got then the Genesis, which tries to make these accurate looking humans. Yeah, the, the sprites in Shinobi 3 are very detailed, you know, very good looking, but that kind of comes at the expense of the animation. Unfortunately, your, your ninja walks the same way that every Sega character walks, uh, except for Michael Jackson. Um, <laughs> you know, like he's just these kind of two steps of animation and, uh, oh. it's a little bit jarring at the beginning. Initially, I found the, the, the game really difficult and eventually you get over that. It took a while for me to get used to the controls and, uh, the timing. Well, did, wait, I, I gotta know, did you fight Spider-Man? I did not. Uh, <sighs> Is Spider-Man really in this game? Uh, you do fight a Mecha Godzilla. He w he was. <laughs> Spider-Man was a boss in Shinobi Three back in the original release, and since then, you can probably guess why. But Sega has had to replace him with some other sort of you know character that's vaguely the same shape. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> <Right>. Chinese <laughs> knockoff toys. Let's do it. Uh, but yeah, like your character has a very diverse set of moves. Uh, you can double tap to start running and, uh, then you, you can get close to enemies and sash them up with your sword. It's very timing based, you know, most of the time, uh, your attacks, you're throwing shurikens, but you can get close in for the kill and, uh, it gives you more points, technical points, uh, if you can just, like, get up close and sash them with your sword instead. And the, there's a lot of variety in the levels, uh, a surprising variety. You'll have more maze-like levels, you'll have, uh, you know, sometimes you'll be riding on a horse, uh, and it will be more of a, uh, auto-scrolling kind of, uh, shooter-esque type of level. Sometimes you'll be surfing on the jet board, uh, because that's what ninjas do. Yeah, and that's what the cool uh, ninjas do. If, you know, people have access to this game and have never played it before, and were perhaps put off a little bit by the animation or like thereof, and perhaps the look of the characters, I say it's worth sticking with, you know, uh, it's not the same feeling as playing Ninja Gaiden or like the, the, the controls are, are not as um, I, I don't want to say that they're not tight, but they're not tight, but there's definitely like a Ninja Gaiden. You can, you're, you're, you're so maneuverable in the air and uh, your attacks are instantaneous. And uh, in this game, they are not, it's more deliberate as do like animation sequencing. And yeah, if, uh, if you, play the game on easy you don't have infinite lives but you might as well ha you might as well because there's you get nine lives to start with and get three continues so you've got 27 lives to get through uh seven levels uh it's, it should be more than enough and um i i've got one more la one last tip uh if you play this game uh do read the manual <laughs> because this this game has moves that you will never figure out on your own like, I don't care who you are. You never will. <laughs> and uh, this game has a double jump. And it's probably the hardest double jump to pull off until you realize that you kind of have to play it like a rhythm game. If you try to jump 
while at the apex of your first jump, you will fail, you know, 50% of the time. But at some point I was like, hmm, like, what if, what if I just time my attacks as if I were playing Rhythm Heaven? And that kind of worked. You know, I, I could jump, double jump every single time. and uh, That's pretty cool. Kind of yeah. like Jungle Beat. Oh, wow. It's been forever since I played that. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Anyway, uh, on this awkward transition, um, <laughs> I've also been playing... Um, well, I have probably, like, my final update on Persona 3. Oh, I've been playing... The endurance run is ending? Oh, no. Yeah. Um, I have been playing this game constantly. Every single time... Every single you know, moment of free time that I had, I would put into this game. I played over 60, 65 hours in the last, uh, you know, over a month now. And it feels like it's been, you know, I've put more hours in that. I'm not sure if the in-game clock uh, really recorded everything. Maybe it just feels longer because you're playing on it on a PSP Go. He's not a Sony investor, John. He'd feel a lot longer if he were. <laughs> Um, but but no, actually the fact that it was portable probably helped take away the monotony of what you're doing a lot because I would playing, I would mostly play it in short bursts. And so it, you know, normally it wouldn't feel like it's taking too much time, but the game is so repetitive that I I just couldn't take it after a certain point. Um, you know, I've described the, the game a couple of weeks ago and, Everything that I described still holds true after 60 hours because the game really never evolves. Uh, the battles are, you're still doing the same thing in your thousandth battle that you did in the first one. You're still trying to knock down the enemies. Once you've knocked them all down on their asses, you can go all out on them. And that's usually how you finish a fight. Uh, they're still very quick, but they're still very simple and stupid. And, I got to a point where I was looking at my progress in the game and you're always climbing this one tower in the middle of the city. And I was on floor, I don't know, 150. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, you know what? Like, I feel pretty far into the game. I I'm going to look up just how many floors there are. And I had been playing the game for like a month at that point. And I look it up and like there's 262. Oh. And I'm just... Like, holy crap, I can't believe this. And at this point, I kind of try to rush through them. You know, before then, I would try to explore everything on the floor before moving on. But from then on, as soon as I saw the, the stairs, the exit, I would take it. And I would trush, try to rush that way. But eventually, um, I you know, I must have not leveled up enough by doing that. And a, a band of, you know, regular enemies, uh, at some point, one hit killed me. And that was my breaking point. I thought, okay, if normal enemies can kill me in one hit now, that means I need to grind. And if I need to grind in this game after 60 the hours... game sounds like a Yeah, grind. if I need to grind at this point, it means I'm not playing this game anymore. <laughs> so I kind of, uh, you know, s slept on it. for, And after 24 hours, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm uninstalling this. <laughs> and so it's gone. <laughs> So you so you definitely still think though Persona Four is much better and and oh yeah worth playing oh despite... yeah because I I wasn't lying last time when I said that I went through Persona Four in maybe forty five hours that that's yeah. what it took me but this one is so less streamlined and so much more. 
grindy. And uh, the story really, like, I, I, you know, like, if I have to be honest, like, I still don't care about the characters after all this time. I still don't really care about the story. Uh, a lot of the elements that made Persona 4 unique are none in this game. Uh, Persona 4 had this really, really mysterious story where um, you would, you know, people wouldn't end up dead uh, hanging upside down from the TV antennas in this small city. And, you know, you're, you're living with your uncle who's a cop. He's investigating the case and you're kind of, you know, in parallel, you're investigating on your own. And there's all these, uh, bizarre phenomena that are happening at the same time. And, um, you know, like the, it was a really, really intriguing story. And here the story never really evolved. And once it did, it decided that it was like, oh, okay, you know what? You're really trying to save the world here. And I was like, wow, that's original. Like, there, <laughs> you know, Persona 4 had, was definitely smarter, more streamlined, had a better story. And, uh, yeah, I can't take Persona 3 anymore. I, I probably would All have right. been better off not playing it. Well, okay. I'm glad I'm, I've, I've stuck with Persona 4 then. Yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to play that. I also have Persona 3, but I've not given that one very much time. Clearly, it's, it does something for, some people, because, you know, some people have been playing the original version, the FES version, which was even longer, and then the portable version, where you, like, the only thing of note, I think, is that you can play as a girl now. But yeah, like, so some people have gone through this game several times. I don't understand them, but, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I can't recommend this game. All right, so Nate, you've been uh, sitting and waiting for your chance, and I saved you for last because you actually have a couple of brand new 3DS games to talk about. I do. Uh, one is newer than the other, uh, and that is Zero Escape, Virtue's Last Reward, which I played over the last couple weeks, put up the review this week. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I reviewed it having not played uh, 999, even though I've owned that for months. Uh <laughs> Unprepared for the depression that was about to come land upon you. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, but also that uh, by the end of Zero Escape, I was right there uh, in terms of understanding and, and really caring about the events of the game and how they actually tie into 999. And I think the quality of the scripts and the voice acting and the pacing of the game are very, very good. And the fact that they've pulled me into that story that, it, that I haven't you know, been invested in is probably the highest praise. Yeah, some people I follow on Twitter have been saying that the game is leverages a lot the the story of 999 and that, you know, like they said, "Oh, I feel sorry for people who are jumping into this game and have never played it." So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see where the the history with that game might might make certain moments a little bit more special. I mean, especially since there are is at least one character that carries over, or one or two characters that actually carry over. Yes, there are characters that carry over. I don't, I don't want to be spoiler. Oh, about they, that. they spoiled, they spoiled that in the in the pre trail. I mean, in the uh, announcement of the game. Yeah, but I, I mean, it, the way that it's, uh, it's uh, it ties into that story. You know, the main story that it tells, and the extra stuff that you can find in the puzzle rooms is is just really great. That batshit insane story. Yeah, it, it's it is. it's crazy. I really like it. So, I had some issues with 999 personally, uh, so I've got some questions. They were personal, yeah. Just how um, fast does the text scroll? Because I hate it when, you know, you have to read text at the speed that the game dictates that you have to read it. 
so uh, we're talking just normal text, like first time yeah. through. Uh, you can go through it pretty quickly if you you can set it to autoplay, um, and that kind of moves it along at a normal speed. You don't have to tap anything. If you decide to mash the button, you can get through it pretty quickly. I don't okay. really have a problem with um, going through stuff that I hadn't before. So if you come up to a point where you've already been through it, um, mm-hmm. you can put it into fast forward, and it'll zip through, you know, the the dialogue and everything that you've heard before until until it gets to something that someone hasn't said before. It might be information that you've gotten before, but someone hasn't said it. So if that person is saying it for the first time, then it'll stop you. It'll okay. kind of slow it down, and it, I think that's fine if it's giving you giving it to you from that perspective. See, that that's where you and I disagree. I cannot okay. stand that. <laughs> it might sound really weird, but like 999 really turned me off with the fact that I had to reread stuff over and over again. And I, I just, you know, like at that point, I was like, you know what? Like books don't prevent me from reading at my speed. So why am I not reading a book instead? Well, even if it if it takes you out of fast forwarding and slows it down a little bit, I, I think the speed that you can move through that stuff is still acceptable it, it was it's never egregious I, I mean i know in the original game i felt maybe after the first playthrough i was kind of i actually did the what they would call correct path mm-hmm. the right. second time and didn't realize it which but it doesn't actually get you anything because you have to do something else first yeah. to really succeed mm-hmm. but um i found as i continually replayed the game and rereading the dialogue in the context of stuff i learned from other playthroughs, it really pushed the characters in directions that I didn't originally see. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a character who is actually kind of a dick, and uh, he constantly presents himself as being, you know, a good guy. But, like, knowing knowing about, knowing what you know about him, you know, after having played through the game a couple times, early in the game, the veneer starts to crack if you know what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, even, even if you go through just once and then you go back through a different path, it's like, oh, I, I know what's coming. I know, I know what you're about to do or or what you're probably going to, you know, do in the future. Just, and I, yeah. I've, as I played through each of the endings in the first game, you know, I learned to, I learned more about each of these characters that sort of, when they were presented, when I got to the final playthrough, was they were presented as a collection of characters. Mm-hmm. Like, you could see the interplay much better than you really ever could from, the game was even capable of telling you on a single playthrough. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. I think that's the same here. But uh, one of the things I wanted to, to to get you to say, actually, Nate, is uh, like, isn't there okay. a way to jump? <laughs> isn't I wanted there... you to say I hate this game. Yes. Say it. No. Say it. No. Um, the isn't there a way to jump actually from story point to story point in this one? Yeah. So I don't know if that was a thing in nine 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 or not. No. You you put you just play you just right. play you, straight you just through go straight through. You can't. Okay. So so you can you can sort of like fast forward through text, but besides that, right? I mean, okay. So, so in this game, you have the option of it gives you basically a menu option that presents each of the the story kind of chapters and benchmarks that you've hit, and so right. you can jump back to certain parts uh, if you want to replay. I mean, that's that's not really a, an interesting feature. But once you get to points in a storyline that don't let you go any farther, there's there are locks on the progress for that storyline. You have to jump back and make different decisions to unlock okay. that point. Like you see the tree of branching paths. Yeah. Okay. 
yeah, you can you zoom in on it. You can move around like with the D pad and the the touch screen. Awesome. All right, Nate. So um, why don't you why don't you uh, tell us about the other game you've been playing? Uh, okay. I haven't played it for a while, but it's uh, Professor Layton and the Miracle Mask. I wanted you to talk about this because James hasn't been on the show, and James would normally take care well, of the so, Layton coverage. Fun- okay. Funnily enough, I've, I actually started playing it last night. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, I've put I've put a hit on it now. So yeah, it was my first Layton. Um. <laughs> okay. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. The scorn. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not scorn. I'm just surprised. Yeah. Um. I thought it was pretty good. Uh. I. I mean. <laughs> I have no latent background to compare it to, but I thought the things that it did with the 3DS with its presentation and the puzzles were very good, and it was just a really fun story and gameplay experience. I mean, it's it's obviously a prolific series at this point. Yeah. It's Madden-esque in the sheer amount of games <laughs> that come out in a time frame, only they're not just roster updates. Well, they kind of, if you consider puzzles players, then... Yeah, but they at least have to come up with a new story every sure. time. And new artwork. Yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 here they have like the very nice 3D stuff and the polygonal character models. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It it's kind of a, from what I've played so far, it's kind of a weird adjustment to the 3DS because I mean the first game, you know, you just sort of casually sit there and you tap the DS t- touch screen and the characters just advance along. Mm-hmm. And just there's this game you have this weird like sort of joystick replacement thing where right. you tap on the magnifying glass and sort of scroll around the screen. And yeah, you're kind of I. I think in the review I compared it to somebody standing on the ground and kind of moving their head around to take in the full yeah. the full scope of a of a you know the land in front of them. So you're kind of like it's, moving your gaze up a little bit to you know look at the top of something, moving it left and right to, to find different things. I mean, just a few hours in, it sort of felt a little bit awkward compared to what I'm used to because normally it's, just, it's all very static. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious, you know, if that starts to sort of level out and you just sort of get used to it, or if it still feels a little bit like kind of a weird a weird merger of sort of a you don't really move beyond the place you're in but the no. environment's 3D now so No, I I mean you're not doing a lot of like moving way out of the way like left and right or anything like that. The view is always pretty pretty fixed. So Okay. It's it's nothing too jarring. But okay. I, I guess yeah. if you're coming from like old static 2D just it's it's very different. Yeah, it, I, I can imagine. It, it goes from being very passive to being much more active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're moving in and out of the the depth of the landscape too. Yeah, because I mean, the old Layton games just how fast can you quickly tap the entirety of the screen? Right. <laughs> you have found all of the things. Congratulations. And uh, this one, you're sort of dragging this magnifying glass around. Occasionally, it lights up, and you have to tap. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that that around. may be something. It may be just uh, a hint coin or an extra puzzle or something that just, the, the characters comment on. They want that Luke really wants you to know that restaurant smells delicious. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll they'll each comment it comment on it one time and then it's it's done. It doesn't let you highlight that anymore, which is nice. Yeah. It's it's kind of weird. It's it's kind of a feature of the series where it's weird. Like they'll all comment about us about one site, but you have to tap it to get all their comments. It's like yeah. just tell me what they're all gonna say. <laughs> I'm okay with this. All right. I, I'm again. I'm very picky. Uh, just ha- what percentage? of this game consists of sliding tile puzzles. <laughs> uh, I don't have an empirical answer for you. That's yeah, it. It, depends, uh, it depends on what percentage of the puzzles he cleaned out, too. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. well, th- there's new puzzles every day now, so that number oh, neat. is... Yeah. What about peg solitaire, uh, chess puzzles, and uh, matchsticks? I don't recall any matchsticks, but you do a lot of jumping 
uh, rabbits and animals over each other. <laughs> this is the rabbit ones. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that sounds good to I'm me. Like, the, yeah. I saw the rabbits when I'm like, you could have just made them chess pieces. I know. I know we've done chess pieces before, but you could have just made them chess. We all know what you're doing here. Yeah, see, all this is new to me. So, I'm like, oh, cool, yeah. rabbits. I'm glad to hear that people are liking it. The reviews have been pretty good. Um, I mean, seeming seem to be as good as for any other latent game, despite being on a new platform and, you know, having a few differences. And I don't know if you guys remember, but long time ago, about a year and a half ago, when the 3DS first came out, um, we had Chris Kohler on the show, and he talked about some of the games yes. he'd gotten for the Japanese 3DS. And of course, yeah. he had been playing. And he's Chris is a big Layton fan, and he had been playing this game, which was a launch title a year and a half ago in Japan. Yeah. And he felt it was the worst Layton game, and and really didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about it. And I was just so surprised. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if I don't know, maybe it was the time in his life, or maybe just just certain things about it that he just doesn't care for. I don't I don't know. But I was kind of waiting for that shoe to drop, you know, a year and a half later with the uh, with the American and European reviews. And I haven't really heard too many echoes of that. It seems like people generally think it's just as good as the rest. No, I mean, I don't know about as good as the rest, but... But obviously you enjoyed it. And, yeah, I, I enjoyed it for the singular experience. I mean, like I said, I'm having some issues with the control. Um, mostly because I'm having... It's not so much that it doesn't work. It's just the supporting the 3DS with one hand while trying to use the stylus consistently. Mm-hmm. Versus in the thing so just tap. Use the uh, stand. Like Kid Icarus stand. Yeah, come on. I don't have the Kid Icarus stand. <laughs> well, there's your problem. Well, get it. You want mine? Yeah, that's it. That's the problem. Obviously, <laughs> the problem is I didn't drop for every $40. Game. I didn't drop $40 for to get the stand to fix the game's controls. Um, it's <laughs> it, it's it's just kind of a, a weird experience adjusting, and I wonder if that, to an extent, was part of part of what he uh, was going through. And I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm only through the first two or three chapters at this point. Sure. Um, I'd probably feel the same way if I had to go back to, you know, old static latent. Probably. Yeah. It it doesn't, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel as completely absurd off the wall yet. I expect it will get there. Yeah. They always um, do. Yeah. Well, in some, some cases more than others. I mean, some cases it's just like, no, what? Fuck you. Level five. And some (laughs) cases it's just, in some cases you just go face first into the desk and just sob. Gently, because the game has done something that you just are not prepared for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it needs to cross that threshold, and I don't know when it'll get there, which, or what bar it'll get to, and maybe it doesn't, it just didn't do it for him, and mm. I don't know. It, like I said, I'm, I'm only a handful of hours in, which means like I've played one one twentieth of what I would a normal weekend. Yeah. So we'll, we'll find out next week, probably. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of waiting to see whether my um whether whether the I can find a a cheaper physical copy or my resilience just breaks down over the holidays and I end up downloading it at full price anyway. Because right. I for a while I kind of thought maybe I'll skip this one and just play the final the so-called final Layton on 3DS, but that game's not even out in Japan yet, so it's probably going to be 2 years before we get to play that in English. And I don't know that I want to wait that long because I really I don't like Layton like James does, but few do. Uh, but I really like Layton, and I skipped the fourth one, so it's been a couple years anyway for me. I'm, I might end up picking this up, but it'll be kind of like a rainy day purchase either way. Few few people have James' uh, affinity for top hats. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's it's more the puzzles than anything, to be fair. <laughs> as I as I've reached the point now where like, so there there was a trick puzzle at the very near the very start of the game, and I looked at him and he said, "All right, this I didn't know the answer yet." I'm like, "It's the trick puzzle. Where's the secret answer?" I'm like, "Oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is." <laughs> and you love that shit, but I, I do. It's I, I think beautiful. the impact of the games uh, of the series characters and graphical style and soundtrack is incredible. I, I you think yeah. you can't overstate the impact of those things. They they make that game charming in a way that, you know, a list of puzzles could never be. Sure. And they make you remember it long after the puzzles have uh drifted away. So, that that's probably that's the main reason I care is I want to see it in 3D and I want to revisit these characters and I want to hear that music and for me the puzzles are kind of a means to an end. I enjoy them, but that's not the main reason I like Layton. Mm. All right, guys. Well, that is a lot of new business, so we're going to wrap it up now and uh, come back with some listener mail here in just a minute. Here's a quick look at the best original content at our website, now playing at NintendoWorldReport.com. First up this week, we have a review for Thundercats on the Nintendo DS, yeah. not 3DS, no. by Patrick Barnett. He says, Thundercats have been rebooted for the audience that didn't demand it. Cat people and leotards with 80s hair aside, this DS tie-in is like a scoop from the litter box. <laughs> so uh, we've also got Nate's review. We just talked about it. Zero Escape, Virtue's Last Reward. What's that ticking sound? Why, it's the sound of your death ticking ever closer. Welcome to the world of Zero Escape Virtue's Last Reward, a puzzle adventure game full of good, grim writing and soul-crushing death. All the clocks are digital, so there's really no ticking. I know, I know. I just wanted to put the ticking in there. It's good imagery. <laughs> it's not accurate. Oh, we also have a feature, the Wii U Launch Game Guide by the staff. Instead of a bunch of previews for Wii U games, we've created a one-stop shop for all your Wii U game knowledge. Check out here to pick out the games you want with your shiny new Wii U. And that rhymes because I'm like I'm in marketing. And anyway, here's a preview anyway of Zombie U from Tom Molina for the Wii U. With the launch of the Wii U comes the launch of an infectious disease cross across our population centers and the impending end of days. Happy 2012, everybody! <laughs> Learn all you need to know about Ubisoft's survival horror game to see if it's worth your launch bucks. We have a collection of blogs about Mario's role-playing games. The staff wrote a series of blogs about Mario's role-playing adventures, but of course the only one that matters is James's, in which he details why tournament gamers who play Brawl are just like Super Paper Mario's Francis. Okay, and uh, we have more blogs, uh, Nintendo's Collector Journal by Justin Berube. Uh, Justin has more Nintendo stuff to show off. Toys, toys, and toys. Also toys. But are there toys? There might be. We have a review of Johnny Hotshot by Philip Stortzum. UFO you direct. <laughs> Johnny Hotshot. You rang? It's UFO. Awful. UFO... Stop saying that. <laughs> UFO Interactive is added again with Johnny Hotshot. As the name you would su... <laughs> as the name would suggest, it's a DSIware shooting gallery game. As troubling as that sounds, it isn't that bad. In fact, sometimes it's kind of fun. Sadly, it's only kind of fun while looking pretty nice. It's also pretty repetitive. Johnny Hotshot. We have a blog, Gotta Watch Them All by Andrew Brown. Australia has what must be the most over-the-top collector's edition Pokemon DVDs ever. 
found in books that will boggle your brain. Go and catch them all. There you go. All right. So, uh, of course, with it being Wii U launch week, we're going to have tons of impressions and reviews going up that aren't on the site now, so we can't tell you about them yet. Uh, but you will definitely want to keep a close eye over at NintendoWorldReport.com. back everyone it's time for listener mail and we've got several emails here a lot of them came in before the telethon weirdly a couple of people emailed us during the telethon <laughs> i i was checking emails because i was you know getting emails about important telethon things and i was like oh wow this is just a regular rfn email i would not expect to get it during this time but anyway thank you everyone for writing in and uh, we've got a few picked out here so the first one is from cliff who wrote with the Wii U around the corner, I've seen Nintendo garner some pretty decent third-party support at launch. This got me to thinking about if this support will continue after the other consoles from Sony and Microsoft launch in a year or two. I figure there's going to be one company left out in the cold because their system is either too weak or possibly too powerful. I was wondering if you can see a scenario where either Sony or Microsoft makes a weaker console in line with the Wii U in order to make the other company's console seem too expensive with ports that don't seem worth it, kind of like the scenario the original Xbox was in. I don't think Sony knows how to make weaker consoles. <laughs> they I don't think, I don't think to... that's a reality for them. Well, that's not gonna... well, the other reality Sony doesn't have is there is a severe lack of money. I mean, yeah. they, are, they, they had to sell bonds as a company today. Bonds as a company to finance a deal with Olympus. We usually call those stock. Yeah, but they didn't because they aren't. They're bonds. <laughs> it's, it's like weird, crazy, bizarro town for corporate overlords going on at Sony right now. Um, yeah. The thing is, I don't know that Sony really has any desire to build a another big, expensive console because they're just getting out from under it on this one. Well, maybe it, they don't have the desire, but they're going to have to... I think they have to do something like that. Well, I mean, they could build a console. They don't necessarily build... Well. They don't have to develop the they core don't Mark II. Uh, it just doesn't. It it doesn't seem tenable for them to go out there. I mean, I remember quotes from a couple of years ago, so you know it might not be accurate still. And it was from like a European branch of Sony, so it oh might God. not be accurate at all. <laughs> <laughs> They're but, the least uh, accurate of Sony's branches, which I, is quite an accomplishment. I, I remember some executive kind of downplaying expectations for the next hardware from Sony. <laughs> So like he like he was downright saying that the market has changed and that uh they don't necessarily see uh power as their you know main objective for the next console and it might go I think he actually used the word casual uh so a casual route and um so that fun fun aside for Sony of for Sony of Europe executives when asked recently if the Vita was going to get a price drop back in I want to say it was September so it was there was still quite a bit of time left in the year. They said, yeah, but not this year. So basically, they just told everybody, yeah, just wait a few months. <laughs> well played, Sony of Europe. Well played. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the, I think the Vita is a good case for why Sony probably can't afford to do um, a really big, crazy PS3-style launch for the next console. Not because they won't have the money to make that hardware. That's part of it. Um, but also, they can't afford to have such a slow start. 
No. I mean, the PS3 was no. uh, was a very slow start. And keep mm-hmm. in mind, PlayStation is one of the best performing divisions of that company. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Sony is getting ready to shrink. I think they're going to start having to shut down divisions. And I'm not worried about the, the PlayStation division shutting down because it's one of the most profitable and successful parts of the company. But even then, it's having serious issues. And yep. I, I don't think they can cont- continue there, to operate the way they have been this generation. There are divisions all over that company that are hemorrhaging money. Yeah. I mean, and Some of those will not exist in a couple of years. Mm. It's It's – it's a very bad position for a company to be in because even their their best performing divisions aren't doing great, Rel- yeah. especially relative to their competition. So I, now, if, funnily enough, if you follow Sony's co- corporate hierarchy, which you should because it's a comedy, uh, <laughs> for, the man formerly known as Kaz, now known as Kazuhiro Harai, oh. is is actually in charge of Sony now. Um, he's lost his Americanized accent. He's stopped dyeing his hair, and he now wears gray suits. But um, <laughs> that's a tragedy, and he no longer wears salmon-colored shirts. It's kind of an amazing transformation. But <laughs> I, I think that that tells you that they're going to continue to really push that division. But I don't necessarily see that they feel a need to spend that kind of money on a console development cycle. And similarly, I don't know how a big, expensive console fits inside the strategy that Microsoft is developing for itself. Right, right. now, Microsoft is developing a very kind of a snake eating its own tail strategy of kind of get all their devices in line with one another. And, and they're I'm doing not a pretty sh- good job of that. They've been doing yeah. a great job of it for years and their R&D division is really under underappreciated. They develop some truly amazing technology that just doesn't get applied to things. But I don't see how, you know, an Xbox 720 that is five times more powerful can push out 20 billion polygons really fits inside that strategy. For them, it's got to be a set-top box. I mean, there's been, you know, there's been the the persistent, you know, driveless Xbox 360 story. But, I mean, mm-hmm. for them, really, they need a convergence device that is sort of like the hub between your your Microsoft Windows 8 laptop, your Microsoft Windows 8 certified tablet, Microsoft mm-hmm. Windows 8 certified phone. Uh, it, to me, whatever they build is going to sit in that Microsoft 8, my, Windows 8 certified ecospace. Yeah. And, I mean... So each of these companies has a very different strategic objective coming in. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Nintendo has is deeply positioned themselves far away from where they used to be. I mean, go back to the GameCube. It only does games. Period. That's right. all it does. This oh, is wow. an, yeah. this is an asset. <laughs> That's a lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and to where they are now with the Wii U, which is it's it's a media managing device. Yo, it's a universal remote for your TV. Yeah. For your, for your everything. I mean, it's, it, I thought it, it was a video phone. <laughs> it is a video phone. I mean, it's, too. it's, it's like we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, how do you market a device that does so much stuff? Mm. And, and it's because all the, all the players in the industry now realize they can't just keep pumping out ridiculously expensive consoles because the market just isn't there to support them anymore. It, well, it's not even that. I, I tell you the biggest thing that, you know, when, when people talk about, well, Wii U is really the current generation and we're still waiting for the next generation. One of the reasons I think that that position is really silly is that if you look at what's happening in the world of game publishing and game development, 
the the industry cannot afford for there to be a giant technology leap because that brings with it a giant leap in development costs. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. yeah. you saw developers get left behind the last time this happened. It's going to be way worse this time. Yeah. Did you see the, the quote from this uh, from Epic uh, who said that development costs would only double next uh, generation? Only. Oh, good. Only double. Only double. <laughs> It'll only cost a hundred million dollars to make. So game, game games that cost ten to fifteen million to produce would only cost twenty to thirty yeah. <laughs> million dollars to produce. Good. Good to know. Yeah. So Glad to hear it. um, it's it just the companies that make games cannot afford to have a PlayStation Four that is as big of a leap as PlayStation Three was. Um, and and I think that's. There are many reasons for it. It's part of the reason that you see such good third-party support for Wii U, because it's a, it's a new console. It's a way for publishers to get attention and to really make a name for themselves on a new system. And there's a lot of great business things about supporting a new console. You have a chance to sell to a new audience. You have a chance to introduce new franchises and and uh, and use your your assets that you've already developed. But it's a platform that is not any more expensive for them to develop for than the current one. So it's in some ways probably not cheaper. In some ways it probably is a little bit more expensive because, you know, it has some technology differences and it has some right. features that they have to learn to support. But it's not this giant leap forward right. in cost. You're not having to and learn to program on the cell. Yeah, and and you know Nintendo sort of banked on this a little bit with Wii, and and at that time it was a different era. I mean, it was six years ago. Things have changed a lot. At that time, Nintendo sort of said, you know, they looked at what was happening with DS, and DS was getting tons of third-party support back in 2005, 2006, because it was cheap to develop for, and it was winning against PSP largely because of that. Mm -hmm. And they said, and as, and as, especially what they were hearing from Japanese developers, is that. Um, we can't afford these new systems, and we really like the idea of sort of going forward with current technology, making it a little better, but but being able to make games the way we're sort of used to. And they really banked hard on that, and in terms of third-party support, it really didn't pay off in the end. You know, they, that worked for a while. No, the, the Japanese developers kept uh, making games for the DS and PSP yeah, instead. right. Uh, and, and I don't know that there's a way to get Japanese developers caught up with Western in, in terms of console gaming. I don't, I don't know that it's even possible at this point. A few will, but, but the bulk of them, I think, are going to, um, either be stuck in the past or they're going to shift to handhelds, which most of them have already done anyway. And, uh, and maybe at some point there'll be some kind of resurgence, you know, uh, uh, you know, the technologists will, will retake those companies and they'll figure out how to do this stuff, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I think Nintendo is, is playing a similar strategy this time in terms of, you know, we're going to help developers keep their costs down. And I think back then, the industry wasn't ready to hear that. I mean, there were a few companies who were really interested in it, but they were mostly Japanese. And now you've got the whole world is hurting because yeah. of development costs. The whole world, the whole industry, you've got consolidation, you've got people getting laid off, you've got companies shutting down. And it's not dire. I mean, it, it's still a very healthy industry, but it's moving in a direction that is unsustainable. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. And so Nintendo's strategy, even though it hasn't changed that much since last time with regards to development costs and console power and third party support, I think it's going to, I think it's going to work much better for them this time. And even if you look at the launch lineup, it's already working better. 
And yeah. I think it's going to continue to work better. And I think whatever, we don't know what Microsoft and Sony are going to do, but whatever they do next fall is going to look a lot more like Wii U than you think in terms of power. I, re- I really believe that. I really do. Yeah, it, it's it, when you deal with questions like this, you have to kind of look at it from more than just the, the manufacturer's internal game division strategy, more than just a macro level of the company strategy, but look at it within the confines of the, what their development partners will be telling them. Because keep in mind, they're in communication with their development partners long before these systems get their final specs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are... I guarantee you Square Enix has talked to Microsoft and talked to Sony about their their platform plans. EA's had these conversations, Activision, Ubisoft, they've all Of course they have. They've yeah. I mean, they've been talking for at least a year. Well, before probably as soon as they were putting pen to paper, they started talking. Yeah. And and they they're hearing this from these these companies who really don't want to push development costs into 20 30 million dollar territory. It's just it's it's unsustainable. Think about what movies cost to produce. And think about how few movies there are that really can afford to cross that threshold. I mean, their studios put out, what, three or four of movies like that a year each, roughly, depending on how big the studio is. I mean, big studios. I mean, you're so game developers really can't afford to get into a position where they can only afford to produce three or four big games a year. It's just not sustainable for them. They have to have a cash flow situation going on. Especially a company like EA or Ubisoft. I mean, they, they need to release a game every month. Yeah, EA and Ubisoft and Activision, to an extent, are all basically predicated surely on cash flow. I yeah. mean, they are constant money in, money out companies. Big corporations like that have to keep revenue streams constant. Have to, you can have big spikes when they go up, but you can't have big spikes down. Mm-hmm. And, and they're telling their, you know, their console partners, look, we don't need a system that is so immensely powerful that it breaks the bank on development costs. I mean, right now, I'm not sure what you would hope to gain beyond, you know, all right, even smoother textures, even more polygons. I mean, I think you could make a pretty compelling argument that it, maybe it's not that important. I mean, you know, people – it's important because people want it. Some people right. want it. But but what I would say is I think the other new development, the other the, – the way in which this shift between console generations is different than it has been in the past is that the PC has become such a more viable, accessible, attractive platform for this kind of thing that the technology supremacists, the people who want the crazy, crazy graphics and the absolute best technology and the, the most – aggressive technological games are number one already on PC or number two, they're already contemplating getting a gaming PC because it already does that stuff. And the games that these publishers want to make, I think they will have a version of it. That's really the Cadillac version that is like really bleeding edge um, that they can do on PC. And there's actually an audience for that now, but they're also going to have the engines to scale it back to a version that you can release on consoles to, to a larger audience. But I think the, the concept of having a console that is really, really super powerful and can do stuff that you can never do on PC. I don't know that that's going to happen ever again. Are we not worried at all though, that the Wii will be kind of left uh, in the dust? In terms of power, I mean, I have some concern. I mean, I think it's a possibility, but I think it's, I think, I think it's less likely than it was last time. You know, I mean, we mm. knew that was the case with Wii. Yeah, that was obvious. But we came out the same year as PS3. The gulf between them <laughs> is pretty it's blatant. Stupid. I mean, it's just so, ridiculous. 
I think this time Wii U is more in the situation that 360 was last time. It's not going to be the most powerful console, but it doesn't have to be. It's powerful enough, and it's close enough to the ones that are coming out the year the year later. That I I think the I think whatever whatever the other consoles are, they will be more powerful than Wii U. But it's going to be like the difference between 360 and PS3. It's like it it will be hyped up a lot, and then once the games come out, nobody will give a shit because you can't really tell the difference. That never really manifested it for the 360 though, because it was lead platform development for most games. I because mean, it was out first, and it's and because it was easy to develop for. Yep. Compared to compared to PlayStation, and if you're lead platform. Guess what? The games are going to look pretty much the same as they do on your console. Yeah, and so Nintendo's angling for that to be the case with Wii U. Mm. But Epic made their Unreal Engine, you know, basically specifically for the 360, you know? And I, it's not the case with the, the Wii U, so won't that play a little bit against Nintendo? So I, yeah. I, I feel reasonably confident that the 360 is going to use the same, more or less the same architecture. Uh, the 360's successor will use more or less the same architecture platform hmm. that the current one uses, which means it's also pretty much using the same platform as the Wii U. I mean, hmm. they're, they're they're all they're in that same the the GameCube, Wii, 360, the Wii U. They're all in that same chipset family. I mean, yeah. they're different they're different specs, you know, but they they have they have the same graphics chip provider. They're built off the same family of chips, the same processor built off the same family of chips. I mean. If you're still in that same, if you're in the same ballpark number-wise, and you're similar enough hardware-wise, you can make it work. Yeah, you can scale that engine. Yeah, couldn't scale it from 360 to Wii, but you'll be able to scale it from you know Wii U to whatever the new Xbox is. So I, I feel actually pretty good about third-party support. I, I think they're off to a really impressive start. The fact that they're they're kicking this off with like apparently very good versions of Call of Duty, for instance, and I hope Assassin's Creed 3. We haven't seen reviews as of this date, but that's almost a brand new game, and you know it's going to have, I would assume, a, a, a very equivalent version of it. That speaks very well to the console's capabilities and the the kind of support that I think we can look forward to. Now, you know, it'll, exclusives are a different matter. And third-party exclusives, I don't really expect to see on this system. But there, I, there aren't that many anymore. Right? They I mean. they barely exist at all anymore. And it's and, usually when they're funded by the first-party in-house. Right. Which right. Nintendo's just not really in the business of doing. They're doing it with Bayonetta two, but for the most part, they, you know, I don't really expect to see a big uptick in that. But look, this is Nintendo. If we have parity with multi-platform releases. That's we a probably don't care that much about third-party exclusives because we have the first-party exclusives right. that really matter. So I, I'm, I think they're in a pretty good situation. I'm not making predictions here, but I feel a lot better about it than I did back in 2006 with Wii. One other aside for third-party games you were talking about. Apparently the version of Ninja Gaiden 2? Ninja Three? Gaiden, uh, Three. Three, yeah. is actually good on Wii U. Oh, wow. Well, according like, to some reviewers. How well, that. yeah. Uh, well, well, we were hoping that would be the case. So, yeah, you know. like at least fix the problems the original had, and it's got right. new content. It's, I mean, it's almost a year later, so they've got they've had plenty of time, and they, you <laughs> Guys, know, it's published this, by this... Nintendo, and Nintendo therefore has a vested interest to make them go back and make it better. <laughs> fix this, <laughs> yeah. please. Yeah, so I, I'm, I was hoping that would be the case. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how everything lines up. But maybe you guys know this by the time you hear this episode. So we, we should probably move on. And uh, James is going to read the next question or the next letter. It's not even so much a question. Pedro writes, Cliffy B has left Epic. Bioware's founders are gone. Capcom has lost both Inafune, the creator of the Mega Man franchise, as we know and love it. Yeah. 
and Shinji Mikami, the creator of both Devil May Cry and the Resident Evil franchises. Infinity Ward and Team Ninja are both shells of their former selves. I could go on, and that's all in the last console generation, let alone a decade. Obviously, you'll note a company that doesn't have all that much presence in this list. The only major talent I've seen leave Nintendo have been Gunpei Yokoi and Masahiro Sakurai. The former left over a decade ago, and the latter has kept Nintendo as his primary customer slash producer. Forget Awada asks. I'm going to ask fucking Awada just what do they do to keep their talent in an industry that has a tendency to burn them out of a studio? Uh, so why does Nintendo lose their talent? I mean, part of it's because, well, Capcom is notorious for this. I mean, well, yeah. They're, they're Capcom not- is a hard company to work for, apparently. But I, I think this, I think there's a flawed premise here because Nintendo does lose talent. Yep. And, and it might be easy to overlook. It mostly happens in the periphery. It mostly happens in their, uh, external studios like Retro Studios has lost a lot of people. We just talked to one a few days ago on the telethon mm-hmm. who is now at at Microsoft making Halo. Um, and and actually Retro Studios has lost lots of people over the years. You know, oh, yeah. Three of their top people left and formed a studio called Armature, which um, as far as I can tell in the is past doing four great years, things. All they've done is uh, is the the Vita Metal Gear Solid uh, HD collection. Which mm. apparently was pretty good, but I doubt that's what those guys were kind of hoping and dreaming of making when they left Retro Studios. Um, you know, you don't know. It, it, you, don't know. You, you look at like Eternal Darkness, which used to be essentially part of Nintendo uh, and is now a so very hungry. sad, hulking shell of its former self. And <laughs> yeah. uh, we haven't really talked about that. I mean, you know, Dennis Stack is 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 a friend of mine, um, not a close personal friend, but someone I've known for over a decade and I've talked to him many, many times. I have, you know, shared food and drink with him. Um, and, uh, and, and seeing how he's turned out apparently, uh, is, is really scary. You know, yeah. it's, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to talk bad about him cause I don't, I don't know the details personally. I, you know, I, I don't want to talk about him when he's not here to defend himself, but holy shit, that company is in serious trouble and they've made some of my favorite games, um, from, from the past 10 years. So, um, that is really sad to see, you know, and, and it's anyway, I mean, the, the point is there are plenty of companies associated with Nintendo, some that are even part of Nintendo where that have lost key and, talent. And, you and, know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if Nintendo's key talent in its internal divisions have jumped ship either. I mean, the thing is, it, there's you such, you may not know yeah, about it. It's you may not such, hear about it. It's such a cult of personality. Like, do you know yeah. who runs Nintendo R and D R and D three? It's like, well, you might say, well, that's that's one of, uh, I think it's a Miyamoto division. Well, yeah, maybe it is, but is he really in charge there? No, he's not. He doesn't go there every day. Yeah, Nintendo's really good at kind of papering over who actually makes their games. I mean, you ask someone, well, who made New Super Mario Brothers Wii? Miyamoto. No, we didn't. No. <laughs> no, we fucking didn't. Who made Skyward Sword? Uh, uh, Miyamoto. No, we didn't. Uh, Anuma. No, we no. didn't. The guy, the guy no, that didn't. made uh. What was it? Uh, Minish uh, Cap. Yeah, the guy who made Minish Cap made that game. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they're really good at, at sort of – they don't really give the public or the media, for that matter, access to the people who actually direct their games, who are the real you know, driving creative uh, talent behind how these games turn out. I mean, and Nintendo is more top-down than most publishers. I mean, people like yeah. Miyamoto absolutely has a lot of influence over how these games turn out, and that's a that's a company 
developer developer structure that you don't really see. No, and certainly in the West, I'm not even sure in most other Japanese developers are, are really set up that way. But uh, you know, there could be all kinds of turnover at Nintendo of people you've never heard of who are very very important to the way these games turn out. Yeah, and you know, it's just the way they they run a tight ship and they don't talk about the individual people all that much. You know, only recently with Iwata Best Journalists have we gotten to hear about some of these people that are that are lower down in the project because usually they'll come in with like five people and he'll be interviewing you find out like this guy was scenario producer and that, that's partly why those interviews that wada asks are so fascinating because yeah, you get, you to, get you access get, to these people who we would never be allowed to interview we wouldn't even know who they were i mean you see them yeah. in the credits but besides that it's all you know yeah, it's I mean, like you have to be pretty fucking important for Nintendo to fly you to E3 and sit you down with media to do interviews. Yep. So these lower, even the, the even the middle tier people, even the directors of their games, almost never get brought no. to America or to Europe uh, to do interviews. I mean, remember, remember, remember three years ago with Donkey Kong Country Returns. Remember how you interviewed the people from Retro who worked on that game? They were <laughs> they were fucking watching you stand in line to play it, and you just recognized yeah. them. I happened to know who they were, and so I started asking them about it. And they were candid, and they told me, you know, a lot of things that that they were allowed to say. It's just they weren't scheduled for any interviews. Yeah, you know. So I asked them everything I could think of, <laughs> off the cuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just that that's what we have to do, you know. So um, it's yeah. I, I I think I think Nintendo probably has maybe less turnover than some of these other companies, but but they still have some, you yeah. know, and and. You know, again, we this has come up fairly frequently lately, but we don't really know much about their corporate practices in terms of, you know, how what kind of compensation they have or what kind of, you know, I mean, they're definitely stable. That's yeah. a lot of these other companies they, don't have is they, they're owned by these giant publishers and then, the, you know, shit goes real bad and uh, and that's when people leave. Yeah, I, so. I do I do think, though, that, you know, like we, we mentioned Capcom as a burnout factory and – I mean, Nintendo, you can sort of see that the the potential for burnout isn't quite as bad because they don't have to meet the same volume of games per developer. Because Capcom isn't that big of a company. Think about how many games they get out. But, I mean, you can look at some of Miyamoto's interviews and see that sometimes you could tell he feels kind of burned out. I mean, that interview he did with Kohler where he just – where he did his pretend rant about quitting because he's just done. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm retiring. I'm retiring. Rant. It's not because he doesn't like doing it anymore. I mean, he's literally, you know, he's he gets worked hard. I mean, oh yeah, he he gets after it. And By the way, he just turned sixty. Yeah, happy birthday, yeah. happy birthday, Mister Miyamoto. Uh, so I mean, th- burnout is is a real factor in any form of software development. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's 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 a I tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah, it is. I, I don't want to say it's thankless because it's not. It's just that sometimes it's just. It's there's so much you have to do. There's so much you have to plan. It's like if you're if you're a software developer, you're everything from the engineer to the architect to the builder. You got all this these levels stigraphy you have to do. It takes a lot of effort, and it, burnout is part of the job. And that's why a lot of these big names leave these companies to go work on smaller projects. I mean, who the fuck knows what Inafune is still doing? I mean, he's got all these... He's founded two companies as soon as he left Capcom, which, by the way, is probably weird to, to go immediately go, I'm going to found the company. No. I'm going to found two companies. But that's what he did. And, <laughs> I mean, it was well known that he didn't 
fit in in the corporate strategy of Capcom, that he was he was worn out by them trotting him out there to be the face of the company, and that, that talking about games he really wasn't that associated with. Hmm. Um, you know, then they they trot they basically substituted Yoshinori Ono to be that place, and then he had his burnout. He basically left the company for a little while to recover. I mean, they were they were flying him all around the world to go speak at events about games. I mean, you could tell he loved it, but he just couldn't keep it up. Yeah, and you know, maybe we're to blame for that. I mean, as gamers and as media people, we want to have those faces. We want to have those yeah. recognizable names talk to us about these games. And uh, you know, and, and maybe Capcom is just thinking, well, we're just trying to give the people what they want. We they you know, they want these fairly recognizable, well-known people to come talk about the video games and maybe that's not the best thing. You know, may, no. I, I would always prefer to have someone who actually works on the game very intimately and, and talk about the nitty gritty details. Maybe that's not what the game informer audience wants. You know, the people who buy their magazines at GameStop and, and whatever. But you know, I, I would prefer that rather than have a figurehead um, or right. even an involved figurehead like Miyamoto. He's still a figurehead to some extent. Um, I'd, I'd rather have the people who are like really down in the dirt and work on that game all day, every day. I'd, I'd like to talk to them, but those people almost never you get access to. Well, and they're busy. I mean, during E3, they're busy well, finishing the game. I mean, good point. <laughs> like yeah, the reason point. Miyamoto can get pulled to E3 to talk about games is that he's not there making sure they get built. Like the producer of the, or the director of the game needs to be there in Japan to answer questions about whatever part of Skyward Sword they're working on right now. Hmm. Like they can't afford to just cut. I don't know, probably a week and a half. You factor in time lost due to you know to travel, travel time zones. Yeah, they just can't afford to get dropped that in the middle of crunch. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they're busy. They're freaking busy. Yeah, and and you know I think it it applies to all kinds of different companies. I mean, um, we didn't read this part, but Pedro's email he mentioned um, Valve with with you know Gabe Newell's company Valve, mm-hmm. um, and you know mentioned that they don't have the kind of turnover because they are a private company with no investors. But then right. Kim Swift left Valve a couple years ago, and she was you know probably the singular creative mind behind the design of Portal. Right. And uh, and and she left and then, you know, went and made her own company and, and just put out Quantum Conundrum this year. So it happens to Valve, too. Yeah. I mean – It absolutely does. I mean people identify Valve and identify Gabe Newell, but he owns that company. I yeah. mean he – for him, it would be weird for him to leave that company. Oh, yeah. No, he <laughs> wouldn't leave it. But I, I but other people yeah. could, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I mean he's the face of that company, so it would be kind of odd. He's one of them. Yeah. He's, he's the – I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the main one. He's the biggest yeah. face. <laughs> I'm gonna leave my own company. Bye. <laughs> also have yeah. life three. Doesn't happen too often, but uh you know, I think what's more common is that you know, people in those situations, people who actually own and run the company, and then the company's bought by a larger corporation. Yeah, Bioware. Eventually the person who started it is is they're not gonna yeah, I mean Bioware is perfect. Exactly. They are they probably already had a foot out the door when they sold the company, to be honest. Peter Molyneux yeah. with Lionhead, you know. Yeah. yeah same thing. Uh, I mean he Oh, he jumps every few years anyway. <laughs> he really yeah. does. I mean, yeah. but I mean, th- I mean, it's natural. It's not unusual for someone to work at a company for 10, 15 years and decide, hey, I want to go start over with a smaller company where, you know, back in the old days when we were three guys making a game. And, uh, you know, that's what Cl- Cliff, Bl- <coughs> Cliff Blazinski, that's kind of what his thing was. You know, he was working on Commander Keen back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then just you get up. I mean, look at the credits for a Gears of War game. It's, it takes twenty minutes to watch the credits. That's 
that's a that's pretty tough to be involved at a high level in in something like that. You start to feel like you're losing control of it. You know, your your input isn't as important anymore and uh and maybe it's just not as much fun to work on a team that's that big. Luckily, you've got people like Miyamoto who he still knows how to up in the tea table. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how many minor adjustments he has input into, but when things aren't going the direction he thinks they ought to, he's going to say something about it. You certainly yeah. can't call him a rubber stamp. He's probably no. more like a more like an iron foot coming down on top of the project, crushing it and reforming it in his image. I, I know we spent a lot of time on this question now, but I do wonder what the role of Iwata being the CEO and being a game developer himself has on this as well. I mean, I guarantee you that, that people come to him with games and he looks at him and he'll make comments because I can't imagine he could avoid it. But, I mean, I, I do wonder, you know, having worked for people who are career managers versus career developers, it is kind of a weird experience. I mean, like, you get you can feel much better connected to someone who, you know, was a developer their whole career and sort of sort of succeeded their way into management and to an extent that can be helpful you know it 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 makes it feel still more like a team even when you're going to war with management i'm kind of surprised awada is still in the job i'm surprised he hasn't burned out having made that transition you know having been a career developer and made the transition into you know the absolute apex of of Japanese industry leadership. I'm surprised imagine. at how well he's taken it, and especially with the financial situation with Nintendo the past year has been very rough, and been and been very personally rough on him. And he's taken a lot of personal responsibility for the financial yeah. problems that they've had. Um, I hope he makes it through because I really like him. I like the things he's doing with the company. I like the way he runs it for the most part. And uh, and he just seems like a cool guy, you know. <laughs> so like, he, see, he seems like he's a good boss to work for. Like yeah, yeah. So I hope I hope the whole I hope the job doesn't ruin him. I mean, he seems to be he seems to be you know sort of making it into something that he can stay personally involved with. So I, I like that. I do wonder. We talked about the Nintendo Direct during the press conference uh, during the uh, live show. I do wonder if that's part of why he does it. Like it lets him feel more personally involved in these games. It lets <laughs> it lets him shield some of the PR responsibilities from Miyamoto, who remember was basically transparent at E3 last year. I mean, he was. He wasn't there like he usually is. I mean, he had what? The, he had a couple presentations, but did he do? Did he do the live panel, or, or did he do much of it? Uh, well, he revealed much. the Pikmin, didn't he? Like he. Uh, that was during that was during the during the uh, press conference. But besides that, did he really do much? No. The, I mean, I mean, I, I do wonder if a this is a water thing. I could protect my people from having to do these really burnout pressy things, and this helps me stay involved in more than just being a manager. Yeah. I mean, Awada's become really goofy the last few years. I mean, <laughs> go, go, I think he always was. Go but... watch his first few press conferences. He's goofy, but like now he's being deliberately goofy. Like the one that started with the uh, the Doctor Kawashima Awada head. Oh. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's just weird, crazy town going on over there at this point. I I do wonder if that's how he's keeping himself from burning out. Like he's he's found a way to make this enjoyable for himself. Yeah, that's a good. That's good. All right, so let's move on to the next letter. So we have Nathan from Essex, England, who writes, A Japanese Wii U advert 
has just been released referring to the Wii U as the Super Wii. I thought Johnny might appreciate this little sampling of user comments uh, comments pages from a number of sites circulating the ad. Quote, Super Wii has a nice ring to it, like Super Nintendo. Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. End quote. Someone else says, I love how they call it the Super Wii. Think about it. Super Nintendo throwback, anyone? Good reference. And uh, another quote, Super Wii. Yes, I like that. Also from... <laughs> Very definitive. <laughs> do, do I sell it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like oh, that. Yeah. I believed I, it. I really got the emotion from that one. I'm glad we're reading 2chan quotes now. Good God. <laughs> That's also, the most Japanese way of saying I like something ever. Noun? Yes, I like that. <laughs> yes, please. Please to enjoy. Also from a CVG article... The voiceover lady keeps calling it the Super Wii, which, if we're honest, is a better name. There's still time to change it, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> There's still time, damn it. Um, yeah, we still got about three days. <laughs> I suppose it's better late than never for NCL and the internet uh, to come around to your way of thinking, wouldn't you say, Johnny? Uh, that's the end of that. Well, yes. I'm I, I've been that. calling it Super Wii since, at least since the PAX East panel from 2011. Uh, mm -hmm. um, just to just to throw that out there. So I was really surprised to see this. It's a Japanese TV commercial. And uh, it's still, you know, obviously it still has the Wii U brand and the, the logo and everything. But the lady narrating it, like very clearly calls it Super Wii a couple of times. And I, I don't speak Japanese. James, I know you do. Um, I didn't I didn't make an attempt to translate it. I just sort of listened. Sure. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your feel of like, do, can you get a sense of what is this ad really trying to get across? And are, they're not, they're not actually calling it Super Wii, right? They're, they're more like it, I, my, my guess from just, just trying to interpret it, you know, from, from the context is that this lady's kind of saying, Wii U, it's like the super Wii. More or less. I mean, like I said, I didn't, I didn't sit there with pen and paper, which is what I'd have to do if I wanted to translate. Right, right. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's, that's kind of the impression I got. Like, like it's more like she's saying, this is, it's, it's, it's kind of like them throwing around. So they'll throw around terms like that be like this is the dx Wii or whatever like it's sort of saying this isn't a Wii. this is something different yeah. like this is this is a new piece of hardware like i didn't i didn't interpret them trying to rebrand it was more of them trying to come up with the greatest words to say how great it is like this um, i think the i think the phrase super Wii is deliberately chosen though and i mean especially considering you know she says super in english and you know I mean, in the Super Famicom was Super Famicom, in, sure. even in Japanese, it was called Super. Yeah. So I, I think it's this is very Super deliberate. I don't. I don't think was... she's just saying it's it's a great Wii. No, it's no, a big but I don't Wii. think I don't it's... think this was a rebranding either. I think this was just their kind of way of of like th that was imagery they could use to differentiate the two, because that's 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 brand that's term terminology of tacking that on the name of a console that they're already used to. They yeah. think this is different. It was sort well, of they, they were that, drawing a parallel. Yes, that was my original argument for why they should call it Super Wii in the first place. Though, I mean, it keeps the brand, but it so much better conveys the the progression and you know the evolution of the system from the previous one. But it's, it just doesn't sound good. I mean, that's that. Yeah. It's just it just sounds so eighty and eighties and cheesy. I mean, why don't we go ahead and call it the Mondo Wii while we're at it? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Uber. The Batical Wii. The awesome Wii. I mean, come on. 
you know, like uh, we're talking about the name of the hardware here, but you also have to consider a very important thing. If you start calling it the Super Wii, then you have to change the titles of every Nintendo game to Super New Mario Brothers, uh, Super Pikmin. I will start <laughs> fires in buildings if that Super happens. Super New Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> so remember, remember when I was worried they were going to name it to uh, me and you because that would be a terrible play on words? That didn't happen. And that's why Nintendo's North American offices haven't been burned to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, obviously it's too late for them to do anything about this, but I'll be very interested to see if they try this tactic in the Western markets as well. Because I think, I mean, it carries just as much, you know, nostalgia and significance to people. And... um I just think I, I, it, I struggle. It, to you can those. say, well, it's not really a rebranding, but if your marketing strategy is to say Wii U, it's like the Super Wii, and everyone knows that Super Wii means, oh, it's like the new Super Nintendo. Then maybe you should have just called it Super That's Wii in the first place. That's just a dumb phrase, though. It just sounds ridiculous. It just it sounds I mean, more ridiculous than Wii U. No, really? no, just to say that whole phrase together is just ridiculous sounding. Oh yeah, yeah. like. It, to me, that what they're going to market. I mean, look at their DS marketing or the 3DS marketing strategy right now. There's two distinct divisions of 3DS marketing. There's marketing towards the enthusiasts, where they won't use this terminology. Just say, "We, you look at all these fucking games." And then there's, <laughs> and then there's, there's marketing towards the "I'm not a gamer, but" crowd they've had with the 3DS going on right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a gamer, but with my Wii U. I'm an archaeologist who solves puzzles in the free time. It's like, no, you're not a puzzle champion. You're playing Layton. <laughs> chill, chill your jets, celebrity who I'm supposed to know who you are, but I have no idea. All I can tell is right now there's a serious soft focus going on. And, and like, to be honest, I think that there would be a danger in calling it Super Wii. Like, first, when I hear Super Wii, it doesn't really bring to my mind images of, like, the Super Nintendo I don't really make that association. It's just putting super it, in front of, you know, it just, a word. It just sounds, it sounds so retro and Yeah, hazardous. yeah, exactly. That's, that's my second point. Like, if we, if somehow, like, it had connotations of Super Nintendo, it wouldn't make me think, oh, it's a souped up Wii. It would make me think, oh, it's a throwback. And, yeah. but there's so much more that I associate with the word, the words Super Nintendo. Then, you know, oh, it's a more powerful NES. Like that, that's not even what I think about. What I think about is, oh, it's a, you know, square support. It's Final Fantasy, Mega Man X. It's four buttons. Yeah, but put yourself back in 1991. But, we're, but we're not in 1991. I know, and the majority of I... people who will get Wii U's in the first few years might not have been alive in 1991. <laughs> 1991 is a long fucking time ago, Johnny. There, there was a time when Super Nintendo was a great name because it was better than Nintendo 2. The Super Nintendo right now can go to a bar and get whiskey. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's a long-ass time ago for retrograde marketing. I mean, remember, we just made fun of the Thundercats, okay? Let's not go there. <sighs> I'm not letting the Wii wear a leotard. I'm sorry. It's not happening. Thunder Wii. Nate, what do you, where do you come down on this? In, in in some weird world, the idea of a Super Wii being announced is probably the greatest thing that could ever happen. In reality, I think it would be kind of corny. I'm, I don't think going that direction would work as well as we think it would. I do like Mondo Wii, though. That's Ma awesome. Yeah, well, Mondo Wii, you know. 
<laughs> I just imagine it in like orange word art font. Mondoe. Oh, and have like yeah. flames on the side. It'll be good. And, and Super Wii doesn't scream to me. Oh, I can play Call of Duty on this thing. It's more like, wow. oh, I probably, I don't know, can play souped-up Wii games. I'm going to play Wii Sports again. Super Wii Sports. Super Wii Sports. <laughs> I, I think, <sighs> okay, we're going to wrap this up, but I just want to say, I, I think you're all going to eat your words when we're playing our Super 3DS in five years. And sure. you'll go back and say, you know what? I could get used to you know this. What they're going to call, they're gonna call, they're gonna call it a 5DS because they just skipped two numbers anyway. So I, I'm sorry. Go. In in five in five years, I predict we're going to be playing the 3DS 64. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know what? I would take that. Even Wii 64 I would have taken better than Wii That would have been like – that would have been just this culmination of phrases that would have made some person writing a press release die of an aneurysm. <laughs> anyway, I, well, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I, I guess you guys are hating on my idea, but uh, I still I still get a real kick out of seeing this ad. Sure. And, uh, and I'm glad that at least some people on the internet agree with me. That uh, Super Wii is a pretty cool name. <laughs> Some people on the internet make me want to shoot myself. I'm not sure that's the audience I want to win over. Like, I, I understand a sentiment. It's your homework. Go read the YouTube comments for this video. I'm sure at some point someone will tell you Obama's from Mars. <laughs> but yeah, I understand a sentiment. But I, I And as much as I like the Super Nintendo, I don't think the reference really works. That, that's all. Okay, fair enough. Oh, don't cry. I really thought I'd get some more support from you guys. Oh. <laughs> That's All okay. Right. Um, <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for uh, for sending in your emails. The address, again, is rfn at nintendoworldreport.com. You can also go to the show notes for this episode over at the okay. website, and there will be a link there as well to send in your emails. Um, you will also find in the show notes this week, I'm going to uh, replicate the link to download the Red Velvet episode. Oh, God. Uh, the I wish cast, I hadn't listened was... to that. I still haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I can still save myself. It's, it's quite amazing. Um, but that, that was one of our stretch goals during the telethon was if we hit $5,000, Carl very foolishly uh, and very thankfully promised to release the audio from the infamous drunk cast from PAX East. Uh, last year, I guess it was in 2011, when uh, he told the Red Velvet story. There's actually a lot of other stuff on there as well. It's about an hour long. There's some really fun stuff. It's everybody getting super drunk, but we talk about a lot of different topics. And then Carl goes into the story, and, it, and the hilarious thing is, for for I mean, years now, Carl has always told me that he really didn't want to release it in part because we had built it up so much as a joke as like this weird inside joke that he was afraid people were going to be disappointed that we had built it up too much. And I kept telling him no way people will be blown away. There is no way anyone is disappointed with this story. And uh, that's pretty much the feedback we've been getting ever since it got out there is that people are, their minds are blown. By yeah. If story. anyone, if anyone saw, you know, the story coming, I, they are twisted people. And I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> it is, uh, it's, we, I mean, and the, I think the best part is the reaction from all of us in the room as he tells it, because we were just so shocked by it, too. I, I think if you look, it's not for the faint of heart, but, uh, if you want to hear some really funny shit, you should download. We're not going to put it on the, on the subscription feed. Sorry. We're not going to do that. But if you want it, there will be a link in the show notes. You should go download it and listen to some 
bizarre shit from a couple years ago. It's pretty amazing. Um, and, uh, also wanted to remind everybody that the other stretch goal we had during the telephone. <laughs> yes. Is that, <laughs> is that, um, if we hit $6,000, I said that we would do a live retroactive segment, uh, sometime next year, probably around January. And, uh, we're going to play the most highly and frequently requested, uh, retroactive game. Majora's Mask, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. It was the runner-up for uh, NWR's Game of the Decade poll, so obviously it's an amazing game. The Al Gore of that poll, by the way. Uh, there is lots to say about this game. It's a very unusual, very uh, important game for Nintendo. Uh, it's over 10 years old now, but it's easy to find on lots of different platforms. Um, it might be being remade for 3DS. Who knows? Maybe we'll find out soon. Um, but it, it's a pretty strange and, and incredible video game, and uh, we're going to talk about it here in a couple of months. So, And we're going to do it live. We're going to do retroactive live, so we're going to play it ahead of time, of course. Um, but instead of pulling forum quotes out, which is what we would normally do, and just kind of read them on the air, we're going to have you call in and talk to us about Majora's Mask. and give, oh, your, no. give your side of the game and give your comments and ask your questions. Um, so it's going to be really fun. Some of these guys, we, actually Billy has requested vehemently that he be included because he has never really played it all that much. So he really He ran to... a site about the... What? Yeah, he just, he didn't run an N64 site, he ran a GameCube site. I know, but it's not <laughs> like there was much going on on the lead up. Yeah, so uh, he really <laughs> wanted to play, he's played some of it, but he really wanted to play it again. Um, and, uh, John has never really played it. So, uh, well, John Lindemann's going to be on there and, uh, he's going to do it. And Guillaume was saying he's never really played very much of it either. I played too much of it, if you ask me. But oh. we'll get into you that. You haven't played enough yet months. now. Ha <laughs> ha. We have a dissenting voice you. already. Um, I think you should give it another shot and I think you will give it another and, shot. And another. We've committed to and doing another. This. And you rewind. And another. <laughs> See, the uh, beauty right. about this though is I'm not going to have to conduct lectures like I did last time I came out ahead <laughs> in one of these polls. <laughs> I'm not going to have to conduct a seminar series on how to play Majora's Mask. You know, but I, I think I think we should look at, you know, at least linking to some kind of guide because it, it, it the game is is a little hard to get into. I don't think it's all that difficult overall, but the beginning of it is pretty hard to get into. So, uh, you know, and and I hope that we will get some people who've never played it before. Um, I think we will. So I'm I'm pretty excited about this. I'm a huge fan of Majora's Mask, but I haven't really played it all the way through in a long time. So. It's going to be fun to get back into it. That's coming up probably around January, so that'll be the next retroactive we do. we got too much Wii U stuff between now and then to, to do another one in between. But that'll be the next one. We're going to go ahead and get started on it fairly soon, and uh, and then we'll pick up with normal retroactive after that uh, in the spring. So just wanted to let people know that's coming up. If you've never played it or if you uh, want to play along for Majora's Mask, you can get it on Virtual Console, and there's GameCube collection discs and all kinds oh, of stuff. God. It's not very but hard to find. Yeah, but don't play it on that because my first experience with the it's game buggy. was with that. And yeah, like the game will freeze yeah. on you at some point and you will lose the uh the soft save that you have from the it's, owl. It's notoriously buggy. Yeah. The the virtual console version is really the one to get as of yes. now. Or the in, your original N64 uh plays fine. It's great. So if you can do that, but, uh, It'll but you might want to go ahead and get started. HGTV it's a long though. game. It's a Zelda game. I mean, it's the sequel to Zelda 64. So there's, Zelda there's a lot to it. <laughs> it is Zelda 65. That's right. <laughs> 
so there's a there's a lot to say about it, and uh, I'm very excited that we got to do that. Uh, and also just wanted to mention that uh, I talked to John Lindemann this week. Of course, you heard from him on the telethon. You heard heard him name 150 Pokemon at one point. <laughs> and, God help uh, you all. Yeah, we heard from John plenty on the telethon, um, and obviously he's not here this week. Um, I just chatted with him. He said, you know, work's been really crazy, um, and he, he doesn't think it's going to let up anytime really soon, but he's hoping that after the first of the year, he can really come back and stick with it and be on the show on a weekly basis. So we might hear from him before then as you know, kind of a one-off, like, hey, things aren't too bad this week, I'm going to pop in. I told him he's, you know, certainly welcome to do that. But we are hoping that John will be back for good in uh, in January after the first of the year. So just wanted to give people an update on that. I have months of trolling to get in on this first episode back, so. <laughs> That's right. I mean, so... the, the email exchanges between him and myself just really haven't been cutting it, so. <laughs> I know, I love talking to him over the telethon. It was so good to have him back, so. um Looking forward to that as well. Uh, just wanted to let everybody know that even though next week is Thanksgiving week here in the States, at least, uh, we are going to try to do some kind of podcast. I mean, it's the first week of Wii U being out. We really can't afford to, to just take it off. So we're going to try to do something. Um, it might be a little shorter. It might be a little bit different format. I'm not sure yet. We have to talk about our logistics, but we're going to try to have a podcast next week because uh, I really want to, you know, I really want to do a show and talk about Mario and Nintendo Land and everything else. So. Hopefully we will have that. Until then, I hope you got a Wii U. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, we'll talk to you next time right here on Radio Free Nintendo. Peace. Bye. Forget Iwata asks. I want to fuck. <laughs> I want to. Whoa. Whoa. Hold Whoa. on. Forget Iwata asks. I want to fucking. Mmm. Let's see. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to rewrite. I'm going to ask. So we have Nathan from Essex, England, who writes. Uh, a, Jap- uh, a Japanese. What the hell? I'm, a Japanese? <laughs> I'm really. I'm really tired. Welcome to Japan. Uh, okay. Okay. <clears throat>